the very roots of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is This is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Welcome to Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins. As always, we are sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before we get started with today's discussion, Taylor and I just want to mention we've got a Patreon account at patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. Definitely consider throwing us a buck. But today, Taylor and I are going to be taking another look at Freud's The Wolfman case. And uh, my plan for this episode is to be completely galaxy-brained and make some wild-ass uh, libidinal economic connections from this text. So like we mentioned in the kind of preamble, anal eroticism is probably the place to start to kind of set up the whole mechanism or that fulcrum is, I think, going to be an important starting point, perhaps. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And just since we, we were mentioning libidinal economy, and by the way, guys, if you're new to the podcast, we have a whole playlist where we go through discussing the 1974 work by Jean-Francois Lyotard, the book Libidinal Economy, which he calls his evil book. Honestly, like, I love that we, that you and I constantly return to reflecting on the book. I mean, it's it's so ripe. (laughs) I will say though, uh, just, just thinking back, considering the Freud we've done. Yeah. Does it? Leotard doesn't necessarily. No, he doesn't mention. Talk I, too he much about mention, anal eroticism. I right, mean, like, right. Yeah, it's, it's not a theme. You yeah, know? it comes up like like we've discussed with the Athenians and the Lydians and stuff. Right, but, but never it, explicitly a, yeah. Freudian Freudian reading of it. So, so just with that in mind, yeah, I, 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 you know, if he had another chapter, or if he, if that were a question that, uh, it's obviously not unrelated. It's yeah. just you can't fit everything into a book. Right. So certainly another thing, too, I mean, you know, a lot of the the whole impetus for the delving into the case histories, like we've said, is to try to pick up some of the notes or the what Deleuze and Guattari reference in chapter two of Antioedipus. Yeah, it'll pay off throughout the whole, the whole these, book. You know, this it's like it's a big bed, like the whole family is sharing the bed in a sense in this discussion, because we've got Freud, Leotard. Deleuze and Guattari. I mean that there's a there's a certain incestuous yeah, relationship yeah. there because anti Oedipus right is the you know Leotard writes libidinal economy as a response or at least inspired by right right yeah like that's you know, it's inspired. kind of like oh yeah this is a radical departure yeah it is this ins- inspiration the other thing that that kind of sets Leotard apart from Deleuze and Guattari is that. Um, Nietzsche isn't um, one of the, the the focal points and the focal voices for Leotard, at least not in that work. It seems right. to be not directly, at least. Yeah, he seems to be 
substitute I mean, for a couple of other voices like um yeah. Sam I mean Augustine I feel like and... his certain like there's a certain there's a certain Nietzschean spirit to it. Yes. Yes. While not directly drawing from his work. Yeah. But that I is interesting. It, You're right that he doesn't Yeah. Really... Well, it feels like, you know, um, you know, if you simplify greatly anti-Oedipus, you know, if it's in the encounter of Freud and Marx, mm-hmm. you know, there are at least two big names coming from Deleuze in the history of philosophy, not mm-hmm. to mention all the literary references that they go through because there are right. a lot, but, yeah. but, um, but it's, it's, it's Nietzsche and Spinoza, right? I mean, they, they really have such a huge effect on this encounter between Marx and Freud with Lyotard. He does bring up Klesowski and Klesowski's book, Nietzsche and the Vicious Circle, so Nietzsche does kind of squirrel his way in, right. and there may be a few other references, but it, he really talks about Klesowski, not, not just that book, uh, Nietzsche and the Vicious Circle, which is only, I think, referenced a few times. It's his literary works that, yes, right, that Leotard yeah. will... Well, he, Nietzsche's cited more times than I remember, than you recall. but it's uh, kind of off and on, right? And I bet if we turn to any of these pages, they would... They would they would not be sustained. Well, okay, Nietzsche and the vicious circle. So <laughs> I just I just opened it randomly. Um, but I do think that that at that time, you know, it makes sense for Leotard if he's going to be talking about Klasowski's novels to kind of shoehorn his philosophical work in there too. I guess my main point is that it's Leotard doesn't do a kind of a sustained reading of Nietzsche, even if yeah. he is a, a voice that comes in and out. Whereas with Deleuze and Guattari, we'll see that. At the very least, the genealogy of morals gets a kind of sustained reflection. And that's just to say that I think that the question of how to how to kind of if Freud and Marx are these particles that we're slamming together at high speeds in a super collider, mm-hmm. right? Which are the other ancillary who else is going along for that ride? Yeah. yeah. Anyway, I, that's just a little bit of fondly, fondly remembering um <laughs> Leotard. It's a book that I, I bet I bet we could take it up. I bet, I bet we could pull it. We could start reading it again today and already see. Yeah, for sure. Fifty new things. Yeah, we could probably record a whole new. Oh uh, yeah, a whole totally a whole, different yeah. set of takes, <laughs> basically. Especially after reading Schreber, that's one. Oh yeah, yeah. One after thing. after reading Schreber, after all the Freud we've done. True. I think that it'd be cool to look at it or think about it again. Maybe just do a standalone episode after we've done Antiochus. Yeah. To kind of look back and see, okay, now in light of Antiedipus, what, you know, is libido economy? Did, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Is it, a little uh, retrospective or something. Because we were always trying to discuss Antiedipus yeah. a little bit right. um, without having, w- without it being forced or without it being something that we did. Yeah, as a hyper focus. Right. Yeah. We did. Yeah. We it was more of an illusion. Right. With an A, a, a little a, diversion. Illusion. <laughs> And I looked too through libidinal economy, and I didn't see that he referenced the Wolfman case or, well, I don't think no, he re- references Ratman. Um, I did pull a quote from the int- from that's Grant's right. introduction. That's right. It's, it's, it's in the book, but it's, it's the translator's introduction. Right. right. So he says, and this being Grant, who translated Leotard's libidinal economy, the imperialism of Oedipus is such that any path sketched by our aberrant desire is immediately brought back to the fold to produce the wolf father out of the crowd of wolves and the wolf man's fantasies freud turns the crowd into sheep so that the wolf father may devour them 
That's good. I, I don't know if I wonder the imperialism out of this. I assume he's quoting anti-Oedipus. Yeah, because he does go later on and say, you know, yeah, it does go into this discussion of this schizophrenic alpha directly. Wall. Right, right, yeah. right. Gotcha. Yeah, so okay. I think this actually this might be a quote or paraphrase within the book. The imperialism of Oedipus is, I think, yeah, I don't have my copy here. I believe it might be even a section or a subsection, gotcha, uh, a subchapter. Um, but but they do go into Oedipus as. Uh, Oedipus and colonialism, Oedipus and imperialism is is tied in there, obviously. So that makes sense, yeah. What's interesting here, you know, with Grant, because he's only alluding to uh, Wolfman, he 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 obviously reduces greatly, as we saw last time. One of the things that I think is fascinating about the sheep. Now, this this is something we only kind of touched on, but you know, apparently Freud's father would take him to the countryside. They had, I guess, Freud or Wolfman. I apologize for his father. <laughs> I made a, I made a slip. The Wolfman's father would take <laughs> would take little Sergey out to the countryside. Apparently, they had they had two country estates. They had many acres of land, and they had sheep on that land. Now we do hear that sadly at one point many of the sheep died due to an epidemic, and they can't. They try to inoculate them, uh, but that doesn't work. But he's Freud intimates that in. Um, in their sessions, Wolfman seems to say or indicate that, or Freud himself extrapolates without the Wolfman saying that on these visits, the sheep, while the sheep were, he assumes that Wolfman sees sheep dogs, you right. know, we're supposed to herd and protect them. He sees sheep dogs mating. And that, but Freud also says, in other places that just this exposure to this flock, to this pack of sheep mm-hmm. becomes an object of interest for Wolfman because he is exploring childhood theories of sexuality. He could have seen sheep copulating. Freud says it was sheep dogs copulating, which is why the, the wolves in the dream are white and fluffy and non-threatening because they don't really look like wolves. Maybe they have wolves heads. And so, like, I think that that is a fascinating, it's a little kernel within Freud, you know, I mean, the way Deleuze talks about Plato, that anti-Platonism starts with Plato, like if you look Mm -hmm. at the sophist, with Freud, there are little elements of anti-Oedipus that are already in there, right? Like, Freud goes kind of out of his way to catalog so many of the animals in Wolfman's life and his sort of investigations it's just that I think that for Deleuze and Guattari, it doesn't go far enough because you are sort of folding, collapsing back his exposure to animality and becoming his animal back onto sexuality, back onto father. So in the end, Grant's statement here about that the Freud turns the crowd into sheep so that the wolf father may devour them. Yeah, I mean, like that, that's a that's a pithy, that's a quick way to um, kind of <laughs> sum some of it up that, yeah, Freud does you know, he gives with the one hand and takes with the other. That's why I was, my little tweet that didn't take off. Oh, well, Sarugmond Freudo, right? The, there's the two sides, right? Like he's, he he both like wants the one ring, the one like father to rule all interpretations. And yet at the same time, he, he constantly seems to be going towards Mordor to, to destroy it. He yeah. just, he never finishes that quest, <laughs> you know? How perfect of an analogy is that too for Lacan, especially in like the context of what Atari says about him and 
he has this instinct to deterritorialize or right. You know, he wants to deterritorialize the sign, but he keeps falling back yes. into this. Or he like fights again, or maybe it's the reverse. Is he he always falls back into this deterritorialization of the sign, but he's right. trying not to like. Yes, just, he always. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, that's on your that's your banner right on your, your it, Twitter. It was. I changed it. Okay, but but I had but you're right. It's this it's this tension in Lacan between deterritorializing the sign, slipping into that deterritorialization, and on the other hand, is this insistence upon the unconscious structured as a language. Right, right. right. Yeah, exactly. Uh, those are the two tensions. And uh, especially later in Lacan's life, and particularly in the seminars you're interested in with the, um, with all the knots, right? Yeah. There's, there is the knots some... and the, well, yeah, the knots and the topology stuff yeah, is, I is super that... fascinating. And I mean, it, I think it has relevance too, obviously. Oh, for no. Both, for both body without organs, uh-huh. that obviously, I mean, that's a direct inspiration. Because uh, Freud, yeah. also, cause Freud also, does, and when, you know, we mentioned that too in, in the libidinal economy conversations is that Freud has a topology of the unconscious as well. Yeah, he has several and he reworks them. And he, you know, one of those that, that I said looks like a Pac-Man, you know, that diagram of, right, of right. the ego with, you know, uh, it's it's got a little top from yeah. the acoustic which is important. Is this the one really that important. almost looks like the like a whoopee cushion kind of style? Yes, right? yes, it looks like an inflated whoopee cushion. That's right. I really do think that one of the things that gets underlooked in that diagram is is the little the little top on the back that's acoustic, because Lacan himself points out, unlike many of the other senses, your ears are always open. You can kind of like uh, protect right. them and stuff right. them. You can close your eyes, but closing your ears becomes more you think of what Odysseus does to protect <laughs> yeah, yeah. his sailors from the siren's whale. And of course he has to experience everything in heaven and earth. So he's, he's tied, he's tied to, the, to mast. the mast. Yeah. So he can, so he can hear their song and experience that madness without danger, endangering his crew. Although he ends up endangering his crew in, in other ways, per, <laughs> yeah, perhaps, yeah. perhaps without, without it necessarily being all his fault. Some, some yeah. of it is, but, and sometimes the crew, the crew actually in the end are the ones that um, disobey him and get themselves killed by eating the, um, the sacred cattle of some God. I think it's some, some minor sun God. And they get hungry though, because they, so it really is the gods kind of force them into starvation. So you can't really blame them either. Anyway, it's really cool. What, what, you, what you said about, about Lacan. I, I think that that's, Lacan himself notes that I believe it's in seminar. Actually, I think it's in the Sintholm seminar where he talks about this inability to to fully shut the ears, right? That that the ears being always open, and how that's kind of a um, that's both a blessing and a curse, right? So that's kind of our we're kind of doomed to, to, to language hear. in that <laughs> sense, yeah. yeah. There's an anal phase for Freud, correct? Like the, yes. in a developmental sense, there's a there's a progression of phases or stages that That's right. one progresses through. The anal phase being one of them. Does I'm assuming that that yes. has relevance in terms of anal erotic drive or whatever. Has a I guess not drive. Of, I don't. More broadly speaking, not drive. Yeah, we specifically. We yeah, we've we've only talked about this briefly in some of our conversations, like in our uh, when we when we did on narcissism, which uh, I enjoyed a lot. This is one of the topographies that Freud, you know, Freud has 
He has the economic topography, which is more of a kind of quantitative way of understanding the unconscious and drives, but he has a dynamic one too. And the dynamic is where, and it's, it's really more later Freud. I want to say later Freud, it's not the earliest stuff, but it's, you know, you, you, you start with the autoerotic phase where you're, you're just a bundle of drives. You're a bundle of polymorphously perverse, you know, erotic erogenous zones they aren't sort of organized right yet, right? You're just a you're just a little ball of flesh. Before the anal stage, Lacan will sneak in the uh, the mirror phase, which Freud both seems to intimate having knowledge of, yet he never formalizes it like Lacan mm-hmm. does, obviously. So if we sneak in Lacan's little mirror phase around eight to it's like six to eighteen months, something like that, where the the child begins to see his, see and fantasize his body as autonomous and, um, and fully formed when really he's still kind of a ball of flesh, but he's moved to the point where he can engage in the imaginary. We sneak that in, but we don't have to. Uh, with Freud, yeah, after the autoerotic, one of the first stages we have, I don't even know if he would call autoerotic a phase or a stage. That's just kind of the primordial, that's just a natural consequence of being a biological ball of loosely coherent functions. Uh, <laughs> the first stage, the first stage proper would be oral. And this is based right. on sucking on the eating. mother's yeah. teeth. Yeah. And eating consumption. Right. So sucking, sucking the, the mouth machine and the breast machine, right. Cutting off the flows. So that's the oral stage. And then followed by that, is the anal stage. And we talked about this a little bit, but one of the, you know, he will link, you know, sadism, masochism to anal stage. And this is where he, when he talks about regression, right, going sort of regressing back, he, in popular terminology, when we use regression in everyday talk, if we ever do, or when, when we do, we usually kind of mean, you know, like somebody's throwing a tantrum, right? Like, oh, he's, he's regressing, right? He's going back to childhood. He's being a baby. We say shit like that. For Freud, usually he means sort of a regression for him usually means like the drives, Mm -hmm. right? Regressing back to, to a previous stage and the anal, this is how he understands like the obsessional compulsive stuff, the stuff after the, the wolf dream that he's going back to this anal stage, which he ties into, uh, to sadism and masochism. The reason why it's tied into sadism and masochism for Freud is because the anal stage is when we uh, have potty training, when we are sort of given the task of controlling our bowels and our, you know, our urethra, our bladder. Our right? shit is literally getting regulated. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, no, that's that's exactly true. And so it, this is where the threat of castration comes in, right? Uh, we, as we saw when he's trying to seduce so to speak, seduce yeah. Nanya and pissing on the floor. He's threatened with castration. And, you know, Freud ties it to a sexual thing that, that he's trying to seduce Nanya. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, he's also, in a sense, regressing from the stage at which he's at, the anal, where he is becoming more autonomous, where him pissing and shitting everywhere is not tolerated anymore, or not, a, or at least not expected anymore. Um, he's expected to to piss and shit in the proper times and proper areas so the castration threat there too could be taken you know if we abstract 
and we don't play it on the Freudian terminology or, or the Freudian interpretation, which is that it's a sexual gesture. I'm sure part of that's too, but, but really he's also, um, he's regressing right back to an oral stage, back to, it's like this resistance. I don't want to be, I don't want to grow up. I want to be a fucking kid that shits my pants, you know, like that's, I want to pee my pants. All the coolest kids are piss their pants. You know? Yes. If pissing your pants is cool, then consider me Miles Davis. <laughs> we do see this in, in other Freud cases and even outside of Freud where sometimes bedwetting, one of the signs supposedly of not really physiological problems, but serious neurological or psychological problems is when bedwetting continues at an advanced age. Yeah, that's you that, see this that, in you see this reference in the show Manhunter, right? Is that okay? Are you familiar with this? Man, are you talking about the first Hannibal Lecter? Or, uh, maybe it's movie? not Manhunter. No, it's the newer. It's a Netflix series. Uh, oh, oh, the 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 FBI. Yeah, uh, I thought it was Manhunt, but maybe I'm fucking. No, you, I think you're Mindhunter. Mindhunter. Uh, Is it that what it's called? Yeah, which I'm, sadly I'm got canceled. Did it really? It got oh, well, so. I, it, it may, got such it good been, buzz, I felt like. It may have been postponed indefinitely, you know, with COVID. These yeah, so, are, yeah, okay, you're right. It, it was Mindhunter. And they're uh, basically telling the story in a long view of BTK, I believe. I want to say that the protagonist, who is the investigator, mm-hmm. and, and, I, and I've not seen the series, just to note that. That's fine. Notes that his own son is having some of these, begins to see these symptoms in his own son. I think believe that bedwetting being one of them. The gotcha. other, but interestingly here, what's really interesting here to connect this back to the Wolfman more like directly would be his torturing of animals, right? Yes, yes. But even even the bugs, the you know, the horses, etc. Freud revises his initial statement or he starts to have the doubts that we had last time where he mentions again. Yeah, we uh, specifically address the horse potential as probably a fantasy, but. Yep. And Freud seems to agree with us. I'd forgotten that he brought it up because he starts to discuss obsessive compulsion. He does talk about how he's torturing these little animals. And it seems like by it seems hopefully the animals didn't go past the insects. Not to shit on entomologists, I'm sorry, but <laughs> it'd be better to, it's it's more normal, in my opinion, for little boys and girls to, to kind of. To kill that, bugs. And to, to kill, kill bugs than to start to, once you start um, torturing and, and killing like cats and stuff, then, then we're in Mindhunter shit, right? Then, right, right. Then, then we're yeah. talking about potential serial killer. But I forget even what. How, how we even got on that track. Well, it was yeah. about bedwetting, right? That, right, that, okay, yeah, right, right. That bedwetting past a certain age is a sign that something is wrong. Sometimes, now, I don't think, I, I don't know if Freud's ever written about this. Sometimes it's an indication of severe physical sexual abuse. Um, not always, but it can be a potential sign of that. And if we take it within a Freudian framework, then again, that type of sexual trauma is kind of forcing or allowing or whatever uh, for the kind of regression I was talking about. And so there is this resistance to completing the task of becoming an autonomous body. Now, I will say that wetting the bed in dreams or while asleep is, you know, there's there's some leeway there, I think. Um, I think that, nor- you know, normal people... That's 
still a, a kind of a, a, a phase that, that takes a little bit longer to master. You know, accidents happen. I don't yeah, know the last just, time I ever did it, but, but you yeah, know. I was thinking I did when I was like, I mean, I was like six, I was maybe like seven or eight and I did piss the bed one time. Yeah, it, it happens. I mean, like we're, because, because the tightened sensation of the bladder on, you know, in a relaxed state, that sphincter that keeps the urethra closed yeah. or the bladder closed, you know, like knowing that that pressure is a sign of a full bladder. Yeah. It's still something that, that the body and the, the mind has to learn. So yeah, I, I probably had something similar where six, seven, who knows. You know, what's funny is I'm actually thinking about college and the people I'd always, I was always kind of shocked at people that would get drunk and piss themselves. They, they must've gotten real drunk. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I've ever, I don't think I've ever done that, but yeah, um, I've been, I've been, I've definitely had, I mean, I've blacked out a couple of times. I, I've, I've blacked out. I've blacked out yeah. tw- two or three times in my entire life and I didn't piss myself. So it was always like, wow, what are you, do- <laughs> what are you doing? That's- well, the, for I to say that this it's regression, right? You're, yeah, exactly. You're, you're disinhibiting wildly, right? You're right? disinhibiting yeah, exactly. all the drives. I guess, well, that, that sort of, I guess perhaps makes sense in the context of alcohol because alcohol does sort of cause a certain type of well i mean it's a diuretic it's going to make you piss piss more so there's that too there's also the relaxation of inhibitions right yeah and your body the the symbolic order kind of gets blunted a bit under fuck the symbolic order i hate the symbolic order yeah exactly all my homies hate the symbolic order exactly uh and and i do think that it's a diuretic, so it's going to, you know, as you know, it's going to make you pee more. But also your body's trying to eliminate the, um, the, the alcohol, too. So, you know, sometimes that means you throw up in your sleep and people have choked on their vomit if they're lying on yeah. their back. And that's a serious thing. So uh, that's how Hendrix died, right? Well, but he wasn't drunk. He was heroin. He was he was mixing you know, cocaine and, and heroin, at least if I remember correctly, he was, he was mixing a lot of the famous speedballs. Baby. Sadly, sadly, a lot of the most famous and best artists, you know, dying in their twenties because of shit like that. If you live to, if to you live it. past 27, you're just not a true artist. Sadly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we, three prime. It's a, it's a, <laughs> it's a numerology thing, yeah, exactly. but, but yeah, I mean, uh, your body prime. is trying to, trying to get rid of that alcohol in a natural way. So I guess pissing would be better than choking on your vomit. Right. I mean, like, um, yeah. <laughs> and I think that with the anal drive too, um, you know, that we could say extensively that there is a little bit involved with knowing when we get full at the dinner table, because, you know, throwing up is, is the thing that babies do. That's a part of the oral drive. Right. So even, even that the regurgitation, is kind of linked to to this where where we we learn how to how to burp and not not baby burp right where it's usually now the reason i bring up try to set us up with this discussion of the anal phase anal eroticism is because and i don't think this is the only place that freud mentions this i think there's a more famous example i don't recall the text but anyways this notion of money being tied to shit and the anal erotic drive or the anal drive, I suppose, which has all sorts of super fascinating, like little tendrils you can jump off of. And I think in particularly in the sense of libidinal economy, this equivalence of money and shit. And yes. 
Analysts have long been agreed that the multifarious instinctual impulses which are comprised under the name of anal eroticism play an extraordinarily important part, which would be quite impossible to overestimate. In building up sexual life and mental activity in general, it is equally agreed that one of the most important manifestations of the transformed eroticism derived from this source is to be found in the treatment of money. For in the course of life, this precious material attracts on to itself the physical interest which was originally proper to feces, the product of the anal zone. We are accustomed to trace back interest in money insofar it is of a libidinal and not a rational character to excretory pleasure, and we expect normal people to keep their relations to money entirely free from libidinal influences and regulate them according to the demands of reality. I think that's a brilliant passage. I'll, I'll let you uh, say say what struck you because I think we could spend a whole yeah, I podcast mean, right. on, on this. I can't quite make the full-on connection. There's a couple of strands of thought that I have here in the sense of, I guess, Taoist erotics is one little fork. The other fork would be, hmm, I guess it would almost be commodity fetish or... yeah. That's, yeah. Or even possibly object, sort of tangentially object ah related in the sense of the excretory pleasure, right? There's a certain, this is what Freud is often so focused on is these zones of intensity, right? So yes. the, that sort of intense feeling to shit, like whenever you have to shit really bad, right? There's an intense physical reaction that the body undergoes, right? Yes. As part of that process that I think also perhaps has a certain relationship to, in a way, maybe down like a kind of symbolic chain would be, let's say we, we've saved up our money, right? I'm thinking about when you're a kid and you save up your money to buy whatever object you've desired, right? Like there's this specific toy that you've desired and desired and you've saved up your money and you've worked all summer and then you get that, you get that satisfaction from actually obtaining the there's a certain excretory pleasure involved within exchange itself. Right. Yes. So it's yeah. like I, ha I have this money and then when I exchange that for when I get rid of, and of course that literal direct one-to-one -one metaphor here of shit to money, when I get rid of my money, when I excrete my money effectively as part of this exchange. You get the shit you want. Right. <laughs> Yeah, I mean... You're libidinally invested in a certain object, right? And then you, when you purchase that, that object, there is a certain sense of relief, probably like, but you're going to have to shit again, right? I guess that's the whole, that's where the object uh, perhaps ties in <laughs> in a more like clunky, or not clunky fashion, but, right? Because we always have to shit again. We always have to exchange. We always have to expand yeah exactly consume yeah. and and shit and exchange before talking about that that passage a little bit more because there's so much there we could keep going freud has a has a short little essay called character and anal erotism which is generally the erotism eroticism he kind of you know you could you can call it either one but he has this point about you know, infants, he talks about this, the pleasure that's involved with shitting 
but also the there's a pleasure involved with with holding back shitting, which you were kind right. of go, going yeah. into with with Taoist, and there's the Taoist erotics angle, the Taoist part, right? Yeah, with the rhythm of of holding, and except here, it's obviously all endogenous and not related right, right. to another person, or yeah, yeah. or it's only or it's related to another person in a certain way here because the other person instead of you know instead of the sexual relation directly intercourse what is going on is the uh the parents are encouraging the child to shit because this is the anal stage as i said you know it's about training the body and about sort of teaching uh the child to not only to recognize the rhythms of the body of needing to piss and shit but also to respect the proper social responsibilities but he uh he also talks about i'm looking for it and it's he relates in language in the oldest languages uh money and shit and um and i find it he says we know that the gold which Archaic modes of thought have predominated or persist in the ancient civilizations and myths, fairy tales and superstitions and unconscious thinking and dreams and neuroses. Money is brought into the most intimate relationship with dirt. And then he talks about the Babylonian doctrine that gold is the feces of hell. Thus, the following uses of language neurosis here is elsewhere is taking words in their original significant sense. And where it appears to be using a word figuratively, it is usually simply restoring its old meaning. And this is, we see this with Freud in so many different places, but he'll go back to, um, he'll look at, for example, what he considers negation. He'll look at the oldest words, whether it be in German or Proto-Indo-European or whatever. And a lot of times the word for good and bad are either the same word or, well, even in like recent usage we we use the word bad sometimes to say like oh he's a badass yeah right, right. We, we, we do stuff like that still so freud sees this in in some languages with uh with with especially in, in myths and fairy tales with this kind of equation of money is dirt money is shit and you know with with this passage one of the things that Deleuze and Guattari would would be fascinated by and where Freud kind of stops himself short or formulates it in a way that is that begs the question when he says, so if money is tied to, is libidinal, and the interest of money is libidinal and not rational, right, as he says, which is a fascinating point in and of itself, and interest in money is linked back to excremental pleasure, right, back to this anal stage, he then says, we thus expect any normal person to have a relationship to money that should be kept free of libidinal influences and controlled by realistic considerations. I think that right there is a way of describing in terms of money, the kind of autonomy that we see the parents trying to train the child to have. You're, um, don't come too soon. Don't come too soon. Don't, don't, don't shit too soon. Shit on time, right? And, and, and a designated territory for shitting. That's as well, right. right. Shit and piss in the in the proper private zone. I mean, as we see in chapter three, they they talk about the privatization of the organs and that the the anus is the first organ to be privatized or removed from the social field, and it provides the model for uh, the phallus too to be 
privatized, right? And they yeah they they talk about like the ancient statues of you know the the giant phallus isn't necessarily meant to indicate any one particular person. It's like a it's like a totem for the tribe, right? It like represents the virility and masculinity and et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera of the of the whole tribe. It's this it's this uh, collective organ, if you will. Oh, interesting. You know what's um, interesting? I was yeah. actually thinking about that in the context. I was thinking about crowns earlier and yeah you said that the historical like the historical development of the crown is just it's a it's an interesting thing right right how Uh, does it arise specifically a crown i don't know that's an interesting someone suggested solar which could sort of lead us to the corona right of the sun okay yes that's that's good Halos, pretty good right yeah that too um but Um, even preceding halos right i believe this would I don't mean it in the Christian sense. The Christians like you know appropriated it and made it a there. Okay, uh, made it, made so it there was icon. a pre. There's a precursor to to ha- to well, the Christian halo. The I'll hold off on that because I don't want anthropologists to like <laughs> right, get angry yeah. at me. But I will say that the crown would be like a lot of these other things, whether it be like the jester's hat or whatever, would be tied to faciality, right? Yeah, there is yeah. a sense in True. which. It's a part of the attire. It's a part of whether we think of the chieftain's headdress or or the maiden's veil. There is this social role that's bolstered and enacted and dressed up with the, yes. with these with the crowns. So it would have to be tied back to this language of faciality and and this entrance more so into what the Lisenguatri call like the signifying regime, right? Because for them pre-signifying regimes of signs don't necessarily need the face. I mean, they, they, whether rightly or wrongly, they will describe primitive territorialities, primitive territorial machines and pre-signifying regimes of signs as the face is not yet separate from the head and, and kind of raised into this higher stratum, et cetera, et cetera. It still retains its polyvocality or the head does. Yeah. Um, so he says some some regimes of signs don't need the face, and I think with capitalistic subjectivity, not to mention these earlier ones, the face is a bi-univocal machine, right? It answers yes, no to a series of questions: male, female, old, young. You could say attractive, not attractive, but that's that's a series of yes, no questions. Yeah. Black, white. You can see how the face becomes, and now with obviously with uh, if you bring in the little Foucault, right? With uh, more and more, you see this more in UK, and you have seen it more in UK than than usual. But it, it's 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 becoming more prevalent in the United States and in China and other places with facial recognition technology, with uh, with surveillance uh, systems becoming more and more commonplace. The face too becomes like a fingerprint, right? It becomes the bearer of individuality proper and so that's another reason why we should deterritorialize the face that was one reason why i always thought that libertarians would be pro-mask rather than anti-masking because even there's a secondary benefit even if it even if you question the effects effectiveness against airborne pathogens Mm -hmm. you can say you can say you're not gonna you're not gonna be able to scan my face i can't open my uh my face ID on my phone doesn't work right, with right. my mask on. So that right there tells you that there's a certain becoming imperceptible already with wearing the face mask that I would have thought more libertarians would have been uh, 
would have jumped on, but she didn't really see that kind of discourse. Maybe because, maybe because they they don't they don't meditate on that plateau and and uh, Deleuze and Guattari's work. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. I'm someone also in that same exchange was bringing up. They shared a picture of like the unified kingdom of Egypt with upper and lower Egypt and how the evolution of the different crowns whenever they did unify it's that. It's fascinating. But I mean, as you can see, there's a certain phallic shape. Yes. Right. There's an elongated head aspect. That's, that you, you see the, the elongated head is described in Wolfman's in his little recollections of Freud and meeting Freud. He says how perfect. <laughs> I think you I think you saw this where I tweeted about um Wolfman says now they had a long relationship. They had like three, four years. This is probably one of the longest cases I know about in Freud in Freud's his history, but there could be others that he just doesn't mention. Anyway, uh, the Wolfman says that at the end of the treatment, as they were ending it, Freud suggested that he give uh, him a, a, little, a little present, a little sort of token of remembrance as a way of, oh, as a way of compensating. Yes. It's, it's a way of, for Freud, he said it's a way of compensating for, for getting the treatment. It's a, it's a way of giving back, if you will, saying yeah, like, yeah. We're, we're, we're equal now in terms of like, you, you gave me the talking cure and now I can give you this gift back without feeling like uh, he owed Freud something. Right. Which because, is interesting and it's yeah. libidinal economics and the terms yeah. and the sense of debt, right? Yep, that's right. Yeah, and because for Freud, for the analysis to conclude means that the transference needs a way of safely and successfully kind of also, right. yeah, yeah, exactly. Or uh, disintensifying so it, I guess. Would that's, be. that's a good way to put it, yeah, because you can still be friends afterwards or, or acquaintances, but you don't need that, that daddy uh, figure anymore. Right. Not in that same sense, but uh, he, the Wolfman says that he, he noticed Freud's love of archeology. span You can see it in his, in his study, in his little area, his little study room, you see it all over. And like, there are all these figures on the desk and he had his, his love for these, these Egyptian figures. So he gets him, a, a little uh, figure with a, a miter headdress and the miter, right. We think of it more as like the Pope and uh, yes. Cardinals uh, yeah, that's and a good, stuff. Good so I think that that, that very phallic shape that we see in one of these images uh, in the bottom left or in the middle, I think that that would be close to what he's talking about. Um, yeah. The crown of e the crown of lower Egypt, I think is the more explicitly phallic, although there is, there are certain, I guess, technically, you may take the upper crown of Egypt. It doesn't, it's not as right. It's not as readily phallic or doesn't it, recall quite so intensely as the lower Egypt. But I do think that Wolfman uh, seems very happy when he tells the story. And at the end of it, he says 20 years later, there's a picture of Freud in a study in a magazine. And he said, there it is. There's my little Egyptian figure. <laughs> he, he, I think that delighted him, but I do wonder and, if he chose the miter headdress figure because it precisely is the most phallic. Yeah. You know, right. Whether, oh, whether he point. did that, I think it obviously it'd be unconsciously or if it was conscious, he doesn't let us in on the, on the inside joke. You referenced that. And I'm thinking of this from, I don't know if you ever watched that show, the new 
new pope or young, I, I young watched, pope rather young pope yeah the young pope i i watched the first season it was there another season i don't even know there is a second it's the okay. the new pope i think is the second one with okay with what's his name um fucking fucking john malkovich yeah malkovich not not a fan you're not a fan of malkovich no, oh he's fantastic fan. the reason i brought up that was the similarity of the phallic hats that the popes yep. wore. Yeah, the miters. Even so, yeah. specifically in the young pope is a picture of Jude Law wearing that very similar yeah, the miter. design to mm-hmm. the to, to the, the Egyptian, Egyptian style, mm-hmm. which kind of has its own interesting ties to just to ancient Egypt in the sense of libidinal economics with the Nile, the Nile floods, and that sort of cycle, that life and death cycle, exchangeability. I think that you're right. There is, I think exchange is really important here for Freud with, because what he'll say is take the Oedipus complex because we, we're going to have to talk about Oedipus ad nauseum, uh, you know, um, but just let's just take it in, in this instance, take the Oedipus complex where the boy wants to, when Wolfman sees the primal scene, he sees his father doing doggy style with the mother. The mother is passive. He notices the mother's castration wound or what he interprets as uh, as the wound that she must have gotten. She, he sees her passivity. He thinks it's a violent act, but she's obviously deriving pleasure for from it. All of these things are going on supposedly when he's um, 18 months. And so he doesn't have the apparatuses to interpret any of this sexually. He doesn't have the developed sexual drives or the, the maturity to interpret all of this, but it leaves a mark. And what we see in the early childhood theories of sexuality, where the little boy wants to be able to, little boy starts to see, and this is, this is the next stage after the anal with the phallic stage, the little boy starts to have the desire to give his mother a, a child. Right. So he starts to figure out that the it takes two to tango, that the father and the mother do. Curious if he explicitly states, give the mother a child, because that's another thing that I thought yeah. was interesting. I pointed this out briefly in the part one was how there's this phrase. The phrase is typically, at least in English, right? It's give the mother gives gives a child, bears a child for the father. Right. Like that's the yes. typical yeah, okay. Of you're, that you're, phrase, right? I think that you're right to. If I look back, you're probably right. The 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 boy wants to. I don't know if he says the boy wants to give the mother a child, but he wants to. He wants to be able to. He wants to fuck the mother, not because, not just because he wants sex, not just because really the mother is the first, supposedly the first, the primal right. object of desire. Right. It's to fulfill a function. He wants to be in that position where he can he can reproduce. So it's, yeah. it's it, it does have a goal, an end goal that's not just it's not just you want to fuck your mother. Yeah. It's it is this taking the father's place in reproduction, not necessarily just in sexuality, but with the little girl, it's definitely she wants to give her 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 father a child. Now for Freud. And I brought this up because for Freud, it's interesting with the little girl. It's not necessarily just that she wants to be fucked by the father. It's kind of like I said, she wants to give the father a child. And so 
we see in neurotics and probably in more or less normal theories of childhood sexuality, the child will present, she will present her shit as, or, or sort of treat them as, as, as little babies, right? She's had her little, her little thing. She's proud of it. And it's, it's a child, right? I mean, in, in that, in the imaginary, in the, in the, in the fantasy space. So we see some of that playing here too, this, this notion of exchange, right? this notion of giving and taking, but also um, <laughs> we also see it in Ratman with, yeah, with yeah. the rats, oh, yeah. right? Precisely. And the anal erotism there, that there's something there about the, uh, about the fecal matter, about the, the very act of excretion that is symbolically related to gestation and, and labor, right? And, and, you know, literally shitting out a child, right? Popping out a... People, yeah, that is a phrase, right? Shitting out a baby, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a pejorative phase, but it, phrase, but it has a, it has symbolic, you know, uh, merit. Because for Freud, there's always a little kernel of truth in the childhood theories of sexuality. There's always a little, it's like Lacan saying, you know, you can't tell, you can't tell all the truth, right? You gotta, you can only tell these half truths. Um, <laughs> With Freud and childhood theories of sexuality, it's, you know, there's always little nuggets, little, 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 turd little nuggets. Cor- yeah, little turd nuggets of, of truth in them. And this is why he, uh, it's why I love when he says that the, the stork theory is not, is not the child's theory. It's the, it's the, it's the theory the parents kind of implant in their heads to, to try to dissolve the question that's, that's so insistent. Yeah. That always comes up. Where do babies come from? Right. <laughs> Another example, and, uh, and we'll go on, but this is related to the anal stuff. Uh, Wolfman says before he saw Freud, he kind of went in and out of these different institutions and sanitariums. Um, and many of the time, it wasn't necessarily he was institutionalized, but sometimes he was going literally for therapy. He was going for hydrotherapy and massage therapy and sometimes electroshock, uh, he mentions. And so it's all these different physical therapies because the dominant mode was privileging, you know, a new investigation of the mind-body problem, let's just say, mm-hmm. by the burgeoning science of neurology and physiology. And they were trying to have their little uh, nuptials and, and produce something. And it wasn't until, Wolfman calls him Dr. D. He doesn't give his name. I don't know why. But he sees Dr. D and Dr. D is like, hey, have you heard about Freud? This guy is fucking great. I mean, he's like, let's go. I don't know where they're living. They're probably living somewhere in Russia or nearby. But he's like, why don't I, there's two options. He's like, you can either stick with me and we can try to do what Freud would do. Or you can come with me to Austria. I will be your sort of mentor and uh, chaperone. And we can stay in Austria for a few weeks and, and meet Freud and see if Freud will take your case they realized very quickly that this doctor can't do what Freud can do. I mean, it was still psychoanalysis was just getting off the ground. If you think about it. And also Freud's no matter what you say about it, you can't really replace what Freud does. And, and so they go and see Freud. And one of the first things Freud says after hearing the treatments he's gone through, he says, he says, it sounds like, you've been looking in your chamber pot for your problems, for your symptoms. Right. Yeah. I recall this. Um, and of course, chamber pot, you know, it, it, it sounds so strange to the ear today, but that was a typical means of, 
a receptacle for <laughs> for for the for shit and piss, right? So you're looking in your chamber pot, sifting through your shit for the for the little little kernels of truth. And I think for Freud, you know, if we take what Deleuze and Guattari say, uh, they get this from Artaud, where uh, only the mind can truly shit. Right. For Freud, we have to go into the inner workings of the psychical apparatus and language if we are to to make progress. Which is not to say that physical therapies can't help. It's just for these types of neuroses, these types of um, complexes, Freud stuck to his guns and really thought that you have to you have to work through this, this stuff through language. And I think that's why that's one of the ways that Lacan remains the most faithful to him when he says the unconscious is structured like a language. I guess to draw the direct connection back to Ratman for the audience is that the Ratman case, he would always pay Freud for the sessions with crisp bills. He would he, iron the bills. He would iron the bills. Yes. And of course, Ratman's whole his like fantasy was this this rat torture where the rats penetrate the anus yes right yes that's the rats kind of the, the and obviously and we, the shit yeah. connection the birthing connection to like that's all present there right the rats the rat man are, too, just are to draw that in fantasy loop. space the rats are are in fantasy space and fairy tale mythological space the rats are tied and linked to to children yes but also the in the case, they're a substitute for the penis or something. I is it the, substitutes the right word or whatever, right? But like the rats, but also the worms, the worms that he had. The worms that he had as a child. He yeah. had he had the he had the round worms, ring worms. Right, round worms. He had round worms, and that also caused his anal erotism to to accelerate because he's you know when you when you've got those round worms, your your asshole becomes irritated and, and itchy, and so you end up playing with your asshole a lot just to be crude about it because mm-hmm. i'm sure we're never crude on this show the stuff about the anus he really freud really could have gone deeper into the anus within the rat man <laughs> but it, yes i think the rat i think for freud the logic is uh not just that the worm is the penis that's an easy one but that the rat stands for syphilis because of the rat and contagion and the, so the rat it's the rat Contagion, syphilis, and obviously the penis, because it's a sexually transmitted disease. I think that's the logic that links the rat to the penis. Now, the Wolfman specifically has an issue with what is it? It's gonorrhea. Yes, the Wolfman gets gonorrhea. The Wolfman gets gonorrhea. 18. So there again, it's fascinating. We don't really see the Wolfman talk about rats. True. You know? So um, there's something to that but yes the wolfman but the uh, figure i mean like we said last time like the figure of the wolf at least colloquially like the wolf connotation is libido right yeah and, yes and the night wolf etc which i kind of briefly yeah. referenced to in the, yeah. in the first part libido unbound <laughs> nice. and and there's a predatory aspect to it not just in the animal kingdom but there's a you just look at like little red riding hood even in 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 the the, the shortened versions that we have this eating the grandmother and taking her place with the way that the the way he's like stalks little red riding hood there is this sexual component to it too there's this other other meaning of predatory there's a certain seduction i guess too in the in yeah the, 
in the dressing up like the grandmother. That's right. He's trying to, he doesn't just go out and he could, he could easily attack her at any time, but there's something, yes, you're right. Exactly right. You're, you're on point. It's, there's something about dressing up right. the wolf in sheep's clothing. Yes. And, yes. And grandmother's like the clothing. sheep dogs almost. Right. Yes. I think that with seduction and with the logic of seduction in Freud, the wolf is for the wolf man, not just predatory in the two senses that we said, sexual and, and, go- and gobbling up, which is part of the castration thing. But there's something about being tricked with the yeah. wolf. There's something about trick trickery and, and, and trickster. Uh, there's a trickster figure. Going now the on. coyote in really, I guess in more like indigenous North American cultures was you know that the coyote was more so the trickster figure in that sense right and that's actually where the inspiration for the whole the roadrunner and Mm -hmm. and coyote stuff all derives from that sort of that tradition the coyote is always trying to use capitalism he's always he's always always going to the acne corporation to use yeah exactly he's all these little objects he's always all these little machines he's trying to yeah he's trying to mobilize so that's that's actually perfect the roadrunner is the little object yeah i think so or always the devices but yeah it's always escaping his grasp eluding eluding yeah. the desire. <laughs> I mean, in, in, in the classical theory of desires, if we desire an object and we get the object, there's, there's, there's a little bit of death there because then right. the desire both extinguishes itself, but also realizes that it's never really what it wanted in the first place. It's always a substitute. The dog catches car, right? You know, it's it, that kind of phenomenon, which is why the, which is why Wiley Coyote has to fail. Right. I mean, the story must go on, you know, so to speak, you, right? Do you think that there's a certain dialectic or dyadic relationship there, though? Because there is, there is a satisfaction from, but it's not, it's not a lasting satisfaction. In, in Freud and Lacan stays true to this mostly, although obviously it's 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 complexified in his own theories of of object uh, cause of desire with satisfaction. For Freud, unilaterally, 99% of the time, he always means satisfaction of the drive, which means uh, redu- which means reduction of, of pressure. Okay, yeah. So, so the shitting so the, reduces so, the pressure. Yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly. I, and, and, and or the pissing. There's a pleasure involved with it, but for Freud, he tries to be careful to distinguish. And I think that in, in Lacan, in his, his way of the different six, seven, however many different stages of thinking through jouissance and its logic. I think that there's the tension there between the satisfaction of the drive and the lowering of pressure and the, the, the attached pleasure for the subject. Yeah. Right. Because for Freud, he would never say that the, that the subject is satisfied. Not if he does, he would be using it in a very colloquial sense and not in the sense in which he tries to. Maybe I should rephrase it as enjoyment. There's a, there yeah, is I, an enjoyment, but it's not a sat not a sat there. There's an, yeah, that's the way to kind of phrase it is. There's enjoyment. Yes. There's not satisfaction. Yeah, I think that for that's 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 where I think Lacan is able to when he says jouissance when he because says you, enjoyment. There's, yeah. there's a it, it opens up a broader spectrum than satisfaction of the drive. You, you also have to have it's kind of like the ancillary benefits of being ill, right? Yeah. Of, there has to be a little bit of enjoyment. Otherwise, you wouldn't consume. 
Right. There, there has is, to be a certain enjoyment or the, if there's no enjoyment that would derive from the consumption, then there's that kind of defeats the whole purpose. Right. Yeah, I agree. And I mean, Deleuze and his A to Z is, is very clear on this when he's informality for illness, he talks about the secondary benefit of, of old age, or really he's talking about the secondary benefit of his tuberculosis, right? At 68. Oh yeah. He operation. doesn't have to travel. <laughs> And he, and he is, it's a perfect excuse for him, but it also is not just an excuse. I mean, like there is a sense in which there's a reality to Deleuze's ill health. Right. I mean, he says that he, his health wasn't great even before the tuberculosis mm -hmm. with the, uh, with that type of disability. Uh, he sees it as a benefit because that's, that suits Deleuze's um, personality, which is like, I want a small circle of friends and yada, yada. I don't necessarily want to, I don't need to meet new people all the time. You know, I don't, you know, I kind of like being left alone is, is basically what he's saying. So the, the enjoyment is, is the, is a freedom from social obligations. And he doesn't mean like seeing friends. I mean, he really does mean like, I'd like to keep my circle around me small. We know that he doesn't like discussion debate. He doesn't, <laughs> he also, this is why he couldn't stand going to the, all the different meetings for, for the communist, the French communist right, right. party. And he doesn't he doesn't like the interminable discussion. And and he says that um, he likes going to the theater or to see a movie. So he likes going to, to, to the cinema uh, and he likes going to art shows because that you can stay as long as you like. And, you know, movies one and a half, two hours. But he says he he didn't like the opera because or sometimes theater like you imagine like Les Mis as a play being four hours an opera being four hours. He said that he just. He both didn't have the attention span and uh, he, it would exhaust him. So, so secondary benefits, yeah, I do think that there's an enjoyment in it, whether rationalized or not. For Wolfman, to bring it back to, to our protagonist here, Freud tries to point out that the secondary benefit for him is and why he resists for three or four years until Freud says enough, we've got to finish. And then everything floods out. Um, the Wolfman seems to cling to his dependency. Yes. Right. He seems to. He seems to need. Well, like with the doctor that introduced him to Freud, right? Who chaperones him? He. There's obvious. It's obvious. It's it's implied strongly that the Wolfman takes it as a matter of course that yeah, I couldn't have gone alone. I couldn't have. I wasn't responsible enough or I wasn't healthy enough, like mentally yeah. sound enough to take care of myself. There is something we talk about it generally. I don't know. Freud wouldn't use this term, but it, we would talk about it in terms of attachment, right? Like Wolfman develops these attachments, if you will, to, and he's always had a caregiver. He's always had Danya, you know, he's always had good and bad caregivers, right? Like, like with uh, the English governess, like with the Latin teacher named Wolf, who, punishes him for translating from Latin into German instead of into French, which I, I think Freud could have, could have done so much more with that, right? He translates Phileas into Fees and the, the German teacher or the Latin teacher calls him a fucking idiot. You fucking stupid idiot. Translate. It's zone, right? Translate into German. There's obviously a kernel of resistance, right? Of like, how do, how does one translate son, right? Is he the son of, of God? Is he his father's son? Is he Nanya's son? But also he would have gotten from the Latin teacher, the kind of uh, verbal abuse, the kind of outburst 
from this father figure that he never got from his real father, right? Which we, we see part of, part of the secondary benefit, it, to, to use this term a little bit broad, more broadly, part of the secondary benefit of his tantrums at an early age is to piss off his father and to get his father, not yeah. just his attention, but to, to, to be punished. He wants his father to Right, to the sadomasochistic him. element of the punishment, yeah. Yeah, it reminds me of Zizek, his way of talking about the totalitarian father or the reactionary conservative father versus the liberal father, right? Like the, the totalitarian father will punish you if you if you if you transgress the law, you know, um, I don't know if you heard this story. Have you heard this? It's kind of a joke, but have you heard this story about the, the difference between the two fathers that Zizek tells? No, I don't believe so. The totalitarian father says, um, we're going to see your grandmother this weekend. Right. And, and the kid's like, I don't want to. I don't want to. And father's like, doesn't matter. <laughs> like, we're going. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. Like, like that's does it power doesn't need to make excuses for why things are the way they are. It's a command. And but with the liberal father, guilt is woven in. Uh, yes. So it's it's, it's 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 son. Don't you know your, your grandmother loves right, you right. so much <laughs> and she will be so disappointed if you don't come. So the, the, the totalitarian father doesn't try to get the consent from the child. It establishes a command, whereas the liberal father tries to elicit the consent by way of guilt. So it's a different way of enacting the superego, if you will, right? It's a different way of, with the liberal father, there's something insidious about it. There's something disingenuous about it by going to that current of the superego, which is, which is founded on guilt. By going to the bedrock of guilt, there's something perverse about it. There's something obscene about it. Right, interesting. With the totalitarian father, guilt isn't even a, a part of it, right? Guilt, it is the injunction. It is the command. And so it's more honest in that way to yeah, a certain extent. Right. Um, or it's not as obscene, however you want to put it, right? I right. mean, like, there's different levels of honesty if you want, however you want to interpret honesty. I mean, because the obscenity of putting guilt first, there's something honest too in that with the liberal fault by calling attention to the the guilt, um, yeah. if you will. But it's a different kind. It's, it's two different types of honesty if you want to put it that way. So with the, I think that what what it what we see is, and this is his resistance to the narrative of Christ as the son of God, how is it that God, the father can, can punish his son so perversely in this, in this manner? Why doesn't my father punish me? If I am this Christ figure, if I'm born on Christmas, how can I be Christ? How can, how can God be Christ's father and not Joseph? My real father doesn't punish me the way God punished Christ. You, you, You see that there is this, wild oscillation in this impasse that he reaches by wanting his father to punish him. Freud will go so far as he wants, he wants the sexual satisfaction. He wants his father to fuck him. And I just don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't know if I buy that. I understand the, the homosexual component of the libido and stuff, but by emphasizing so strongly that he wants sexual satisfaction from his father, I find that less, I find that coming on a little too strong. I really do think he just wants that attention. He wants a form of love. Doesn't have to be directly sexual. Mm-hmm. Right? He, I, uh, we we kind of touched good, on this. Yeah. Yeah. Because the libidinal isn't necessarily sex. Yes. Right? Even. I mean, and, and, and with this oscillation of 
Am I Christ? Am I Wolfman? Am I Sergey? Well, he probably never called himself Wolfman. You get what I'm saying. Am I Christ? Yeah. Uh, am I Christ? Am I Sergey? Am I am I son of God? Am I the son of my father? Am I Nanya's son? Right, which we can't forget uh, him as a son substitute. You know, he is. I think that the logic is less. I want my father to fuck me, and more. I want my father to kill me. Right, like Christ was sacrificed. Because at hmm. least in that, there's something great. Interesting. But instead, the father gives him indifference, <laughs> <laughs> or, or or juggles the pillowcases or the pillows, which right. is just it answers a, the absurdity of the child's acting out with another kind of absurdity. And so no reverse psychology. Oh, it's it's totally it's totally it's like <laughs> um of, yeah. it's like uh. The, the flute player mesmerizing the, the cobra, right? There's something absurd about it. Now we know that it's not necessarily the tune of the flute. It's actually the, it's actually the stick itself, which in this case doesn't have to be a phallus. It's, it's, it's literally just a perceptual, you know, like with a cat, the cat doesn't see a, a phallus when it's playing with its little toys, right? Even if it has that figure. Same with the, it's the movement of the, of the flute and not the tune that seduces the the cobra. So the movement of the pillows that has no life. It's, it's 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 like a it's like a machine that uh, Deleuze and Guattari would talk about, right? With it's like Beckett's Molloy, and he's got the the different stones going in and out of the different pockets, right? In this kind of juggling way, there's something to this juggling machine that the that the father concocts as a way as a substitute for the punishment that the child wants, you know, it's, <laughs> nobody gets off. Nobody, nobody gets off yeah. on this. Uh, that's funny. There's a few different little strands that I want to. Please off let's of. keep going. I'm having fun. This is one would be just real briefly, a good example of this sort of secondary benefits of, of the illness. I was recalling and you'll remember this too, perhaps in the first season of um, the leftovers, Nora Durst, her whole family, right? They disappeared in the in the great. They sort of disappear in this quasi rapture like yes. event, right? They are the great departure. It would be a but yeah. They are disappeared. They are departed. It's 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 better to say that than they disappear, right? right. It's kind of like the desaparecidos. Not to <laughs> think of a think of a, a a terrible name for for something so common but yeah there's no logic to them they aren't dead so she can't mourn for them but go on yeah and so you see her at one point at a coffee shop and when no one is looking she knocks over her coffee cup yes and the coffee cup falls and breaks and someone rushes over and they see that it's her and they're like oh i'm so sorry like and then she ends up just leaving. She doesn't even really, she doesn't end up like drinking any more coffee or anything. She just like, I, I guess they comp her coffee or something. I, I mean, I either, believe he, that I, part's I, irrelevant, you know? I, no, no, it, but, but I believe he goes to get her a fresh one, if I'm right. You might be right. Because I think she leaves before he comes back and that's part of the Maybe so, yeah. That perplexing sounds, thing. Right, yeah. Yeah, no, I believe that's how it happens. And you're right. That is a beautiful scene. And just to like, reiterate for the for the listener if they haven't seen it you know she is as coop said she's lost her husband and two husband kids. and two kids in the in the in the story uh just as cooper said there's like is it 10 percent it's it like two two percent two percent two percent of the world's population vanishes in thin air like they were raptured like they were taken right 
uh, from God. And the story basically focuses on the the after effects, the the the, the catastrophic, quasi post apocalyptic effects of this event. And this one woman in in the town, probably, I, I believe we we learned that only there's like what one in however many billion chance for this to happen to her. There's a one in just an astronomical probability of all of her loved ones being taken all at once. And um, this gives her a kind of celebrity status, right? We see from the very first episode uh, when they're commemorating, what is it? The three year anniversary or something like that. Yes. Uh, she, she's like the, she's like the keynote speaker. Keynote speaker. If you will. <laughs> yeah. She is the keynote speaker. And there's there's also a counter pro, there's a protest uh, and it ends violently so because uh, people people don't want to move on in a certain way she doesn't she's not at least at this point in the story she's not willing to move on but she also doesn't she she both wants to in a certain way be treated normally and like everybody else yeah but at the same time as you're saying. Because that's an impossibility and because she probably gets stared at all the time and gets all, oh, I'm so sorry you lost. Oh, you know, she probably gets that all the fucking time unsolicited. Right. So she's the passive recipient of this without uh, she can't avoid that. She can't she can't escape that like the drive. So in this instant, in, in, in this instance, she becomes the active it's almost like she's she's in the coffee shop. There's all there's people all around her. You know, even the the waiter doesn't seem to have noticed her. So maybe that's why she has she she feels the need to feel normal again, at least that present state of normal, which is to to be the object of attention and 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 just uh, radical. She's 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 a radical outcast in a certain way, even though. At that moment in the in the cafe, no one's paying her any attention, uh, and it's almost, it's almost like she she needs to have that now. That's something she's become addicted to. So yeah, that's a that's kind of a secondary benefit. There was that that I wanted to point out briefly. Another couple of things. One <laughs> is I was thinking about the wolf socialization or culture. <laughs> I guess not culture, but right. Wolves have all right. There's the alpha wolf, right? The father that the alpha wolf there's a certain there's a certain sexual proof yeah there's a certain sexual responsibility there right and a leadership and a power function right that are tied up in this phallic organization of the pack yeah there there is a head of the pack some of the logic of alpha wolf yeah it's been disputed right yeah we've talked about this anyway go on but still it's like that's not necessarily super important, but the fact that it indi- exists in kind of the symbolic or imaginary, yes. I think, is the more important. It's the same with uh, with lion prides, right? It's even more so with lion prides, right? The the sort of the primordial lion father. I was going to say Simba, but I guess I mean Mufasa. <laughs> Mufasa, yeah. right? Yeah, there's that, and and you see if you understand the uh, the ethology and the the sort of ecology of of lion prides, you 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 can you can sympathize a little bit with Scar, maybe maybe a now little he, bit. Now he does also reference. Am I right? There, a Wolfman also has. A, there's a lion. A, there's a lion reference too. Just to yeah, there is a lion reference. He. God, I know it's in part 
five this i think it's in part five some matters of discussion which we can skip over uh but i will just say in part five which is kind of the midway point of the whole essay he kind of does a dear reader and has a kind of polemic or and a kind of justification for his theories of psychoanalysis he brings up his kind of debates with Adler and Jung. He brings up all the objections that one might have to going back to childhood and specifically the sexual kernels of the sexual traumas of childhood. He, he kind of goes on a whole excursus, which we've kind of already, well, to a certain extent, we, we've talked about some of this, but, uh, but yeah, I don't know if we'll be able to find it, but I do know that you're right. There is, um, there is the lion that's brought up. I, Swear I am. Um, swear I wrote it down. Anyway, keep 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 going. Another little strand that I wanted to mention was the colloquialism about money burning a hole in your pocket. I like that. Right, and going back to that example, the examples I was giving as far as the enjoyment of of exchange. Yes. Right. And the, the enjoyment of, of exchange. And this phrase, and it's this phrase, the money's burning a hole in your pocket. The implication is that you're ready to spend that money, but you don't necessarily have an object in mind always. I guess like it's not always 100% tied to I have a specific object of desire. Yes. That this money's burning a hole in my pocket. I think it's, it can be, I think, using that context. I'm going to treat myself. Right. But it's more so in the context of I don't have a specific outlet for my desire or for these for this money, but the fact that I have this money is sort of generating the, the its desire, like in this kind of yeah. circular a sort of positive feedback loop in that the, sense the, the, in, in the, the libidinally. The stockpile itself is demanding the right, expenditure. Yes. Desire, desire of the other Right. You could, you could get kind of with plays the, into that, right? You could get into um, stuff about Bataille here and expenditure. But, you know, I also think about Benjamin Franklin and, and how we, Freud himself. Penny wise and fresh. What is it? Penny wise and flesh. Pound, pound, pound foolish. Pound foolish. Penny, penny wise and, yeah. But also Freud himself didn't popularize the term or really even conceptualize it, but we, when we use the term anal retentive, there is always part of that is, um, or just anal retentive types. Part of that is obviously linked to this question of whether it be hoarding, whether it be, uh, or even, yeah, miserly, ooh, that's good. Right? That's, that's good because um, it's like, if you're a tight ass with money, right? Yeah. Tight ass <laughs> with money. There you go. Oh, or that's, just, that's fucking brilliant because that or, uh, goes back yeah. to the whole shitting and money and right? just a tight ass, and just a tight ass in general. If you're a tight ass, there's there's this. Well, I mean, Freud himself links anal character types to orderliness, fastidiousness, sometimes severity. There's all obviously miserliness that's tied in. And one of the things that uh, we see with Wolfman's obsessive compulsion, and we can go back to Ratman too. But with Wolfman, Freud says. At any given moment, I could never tell if he's a miser or a spendthrift. Right, right. Yes, yes. He, because he he's seems oscillating to... between the two. Yeah. yeah. Now <clears throat> we have we do have the incident where when they're kids and the father gives two, I believe it's it's a certain sum of money 
to the daughter and he becomes violently jealous and he attacks her so thoroughly to the point she gives up the money to him. I mean, that right there doesn't really even beg analysis, right? I mean, like we... <laughs> but like to contra- contradict that, though, is later on, right? Because then there's the discussion of the inheritance, too. Yes. Which he sort of repress. Well, I don't want to. I don't want to use the well, technical uh, language, but I, I, you're right. You're right to totally link to the inheritance. We we talked a little bit about this last time, but we can say a little bit more. I mean, one of the one thing I would say about that incident you brought up is it's not just the money becomes the associative link. It's right. again, it's again the sister being incurring favor in the father's right. eyes. Correct. That's really what he's jealous of. The money is just a part of the that exchange. Sure. Uh, and it, but it does take on associative intensity right uh, and and but yes the the sister dying he makes the crude joke at her funeral that oh well now now the inheritance is all mine <laughs> right <laughs> yeah. like his way of processing it i mean we, we know that people mourn in different ways that they they can either cry or tell jokes you know I'm, right i was when my when my mother and father pass on those different occasions i Speaking of relations, sibling relations with my sister, you know, she's she's the first type or she's she's going to have her cry and cry it out. And that's normal processing. I would I would I would, I would make fucked up jokes. I mean, that's yeah. just that's just I'm just different. And maybe because she cried so much. That, <laughs> You're just that built I, different. That right? I, well, <laughs> and, and even like it may have been because she, she cried that I felt the need to, to make jokes. Right. To be to be the to be different. Strong, I don't know. To be the strong brother too i think maybe yeah and it, there's there's part of that i would tell more jokes fulfilling your little phallic I, your little phallic function as the strong <laughs> as the strong brother to well like, yeah to put on I a mean, brave brave face i mean uh, when my when my mother died uh, you know at the funeral my i was thinking more my, father but anyways well my sister was was basically lost it my dad wasn't very much far behind her and so we're all mm-hmm. standing up there and yeah I'm, I'm i'm in the middle of them trying to like trying to like hold them hold them together I did. I mean, I shed some tears, but I, I wasn't, I wasn't bawling. They were, they were pretty bad. It, it was, it was a sudden, it was a sudden death. So, you yeah, know, yeah. I, you know, Tragedy, it's, it, yeah. so there was still a lot to process, right, um, right. but you know, with so many of the jokes I told in my head when my mother died, I, you know, I, there was one joke that I wish I could have told my sister because she would have hated <laughs> me because, because the jokes that I told my sister, there was always some, there's always some cruelty to it, some playful cruelty because I, yeah. I know how to get, I know how to piss her off. I know the things to say and how to say them to get a reaction from her. And she's just an easy target. She, 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 she has to like knee jerk. I love her by the way. Um, <laughs> Uh, not even ironically, uh, but the one joke, well, that's what rem- you say, but I wonder, I remember. <laughs> I, yeah. Well, I, I remember at, at work one day, one of my colleagues was who, who always told funny jokes, lewd jokes. He, uh, he set up like a, your mama joke or something. And I, and I, and I, 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 and then he like saw in my face that I didn't react. Not, not, it, it wasn't really funny, but he's, he's like, he's like, Oh, and he started to say, like, you know, is your mom dead? And I said, um, I looked at him like deadpan and said, like, my mother sucks cocks in hell. <laughs> and and he just he just like lost it. Oh, my God. Uh, yeah. Which, which is one of my favorite lines from uh, The Exorcist, yeah, yeah. by the way. Well, I'm he glad we're of similar temperaments in this in this regard, yeah. because I, too, 
I would definitely go the route of Gallo's humor. Yes, I for sure. I I know that I know that my dad. I can't speak for my mom, but I know that my dad would have would laugh at that kind of joke. Yeah. Maybe not, maybe not uh, if he were still alive and I said it about mom, uh, maybe, maybe he wouldn't have, have laughed, but if he was look, looking down from heaven when I, when I said it, he, he probably would have laughed. He, he, would have, he would have known that it, that it was funny um, and that that's, that's a way of, on the, on the one hand, that's a way of coping, but on the other hand, that's also a way of, you know, because his immediate reaction was thinking, oh my God, your mother's dead, all oh, and starting to go into some sort of like pity and, and right, guilt right. and shit. And then it's you like, <laughs> it's like fuck that, fuck that shit. We're not, no, we are not, we are not gonna, we are not gonna have feel guilt and sadness and, and we're not gonna have a pity party. We're gonna laugh. Right. Yeah. We're, we're gonna laugh because because what can you do? Right? I mean, like yeah, what, exactly. why 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 dwell on those negative things? Why so 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 we got to this point because when his sister dies, it, he, it, it takes him either a week or, m- or months to process it. And we, we know the story. He goes to the, to the region where she died and he cries at the poet's grave, yada, yada. Uh, we, we talked about that last time, uh, listener. I'm not going to, dear, dear, dear audience. <laughs> but, but, but he does say when she died and she, he's at the funeral, he, he doesn't really feel emotions. Yeah. He doesn't process them yet. And his first the first thing that comes into his head, which is completely true, but he turns it into a crude joke of, well, ha ha, now I get the inheritance. So there is a, a, obviously a tinge of remorse there, but there, but there's also this perverse semi-cruelty uh, trying to, let's say, find the bright side. And there's obviously that that's, that's something that's been insistent, right? Back to the event that you brought up, him, him pitching a, Fifty a fucking fit, a hissy fit when his sister gets uh, the money from his, from the father, and also this is part of the thing about the fear of the father, the fear of castration, wanting to fuck the father, yada yada yada. There is this, like the Rat Man, there is this wish for the father to be dead, this right. repressed wish, and it comes to if the father's dead, then. Then, then, then I get all the money. That's part of part of Ratman is is part of that, but it's also if the father's dead, I can fuck whom I want. I can fuck the fuck the girls I want to without without any guilt. And I assume Wolfman could have had some of the similar relations with the uh, as the Ratman if the father had no. Well, this is the question if. The father found out he was fucking the servant girls, one of whom's name was Anna. We know now that Anna is uh, his sister's name, right? He tries to seduce his sister when they're teenagers, you know, years after she had seduced him. She uh, she rejects him. So what does he do? He goes and fucks the servant girl with the same name. If his father would have known about the servant girls he's fucking, I wonder if he knew about the gonorrhea. It's possible right at age 18 and his dependency what would the father have done? I don't think the father would have done the same thing as the rat man's father. I don't think the, I don't don't think he would have, I don't, I think that this guy is either too, too chill. So laid back, doesn't give a fuck. I don't know how you describe it, but we see that. Well, he has his own depression. Yes, he does. He has probably a part of the, so I don't know, may lend a certain sympathy or something Mm -hmm. perhaps. Yep. Yeah, I think so. And who knows? Uh, the, but we, we, we can see that his father 
would have acted differently than the rat man. The rat man's father says, son, you can't marry no. that woman. Yeah. And, and you gotta, you gotta marry at your class or above. Right. Hopefully he's marrying up. I think with, with perhaps with the Wolfman, you would think that they're even higher class. The father would be like, Oh, well, we got to keep the family prestige yes. and the fortune, blah, blah, Correct. blah. And he's just, he obviously is uh, distracted by his own problems. He's, we hear that he's got his own mental illnesses. We hear that mental illness of various types runs in the family. We hear about the uncle more than mm-hmm. once. We hear about the uncle with his own severe obsessive compulsion. And as I said last time, I think Freud, one of the benefits of Freud, even if later he will sneak in hereditary acquisition and phylogenesis in, in, in ways that are perhaps suspect, perhaps speculative, Freud, for the most part, even if he talks about a family's disposition to mental illness, he really is not convinced and not satisfied with this notion of a genetic disposition. Now, there could be, that's not to say that there, there wouldn't be certain genes that, not, not to say that, but I think that he would want to find behind a sort of the family's predisposition, he would want to see all sorts of different fucked up acts of childhood and how they get displaced and pushed on to how there's these ripple effects, yeah. right? There's these echoes, there's these reverberations, the, you know, we, uh, we talked a little bit about this with, um, with the victims of, of sexual abuse, abuse as children. They, they tend to have yeah. a higher rate of, you know, of putting it on others. We also see in uh, beyond the pleasure principle, when he talks about a child, you know, say going to see a doctor and having a nasty operation or, or, or some some violence that's done on them. They want to play that out. They want to act it out uh, with their friends, right? Acting doc, playing doctor and these other things. They want to submit their friends to the type of cruelty they underwent passively. And this is the drive to master. This is the, the drive of becoming active. And I think that part of that, just to sum this up so we can move on, part of that I think is in that oscillation between I'm going to be a tight ass with money. I'm going to be a loose ass with money, right? Yes. This, this oscillation between the two indicates this oscillation between passive and active that we see in his, um, in his sexual history and his sexual traumas. It's also the Freud says the sh- separating libidinal, separating the libidinal and the economic or like the economic choices should be made based on reality and not the, and not the libido. And yeah, good. I'm glad you came back to this. I'm also thinking about that in the sense of a certain, I don't know, this is not quite, this is a half-assed idea, but something about there's a territoriality deterritorialization element with, with where or how maybe not, maybe that's not the right phrasing, but I think, the shitting where to shit that whole learning that developmental process and also learning how to be smart with money have a certain relationship right because it's like yeah. oh don't don't sh- don't shit where you eat sort yep. of <laughs> like yep. all right that's that's, right. that's mundane but you know don't don't shit here don't shit yet don't shit your pants don't shit here in front of these people, hold your hold on to your money, your shit, right? Yep. 
in a sense. Yeah. Only only release your money at these appropriate zones or purposes or et cetera, right? Like there's a territorialization towards what we direct our money or our purchases to. I don't know. That's kind of like a, I don't know. This is just stuff that's free associating in my head. No, no, this is all good. This is all good because just to piggyback on that, I mean, um, we could say that there is the opposite. When he is being a spendthrift, when he is there, what um, became fashionable to talk about, uh, is there a conspicuous consumption? Is he is he going out, whether it be making <laughs> it rain or, you know, or whatever, or, or purchasing different, different clothes and, you know, whether it be, you know, the, doesn't have to be, be the pimp hat and stuff you know it's uh the question of con- conspicuous consumption does become a valid question that we don't know anything about here but it reminds me of something that christians don't always practice which is christ well it's christ teaching but it's i believe it's paul no it is, i think it is christ i think it's christ who says you know when you go and pray go into the interior of your home into your closet and and you have this private prayer you're not you're not so so really i read that as as like what's interesting too is private privy yeah privy (laughs) that's right and and private and just privates yeah genitals yeah but it's it's don't perform your wokeness don't signal your virtue out like a charlatan like the philistines and the sadducees yeah Um, right okay you know nice that that, with works christ yeah well that's one part of it with works that's that's different but you're not but if you're performing the works, so you, oh yeah, you're right. I so you're seeing, <laughs> no, 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 I mean, no, no. Works are fine, but if you're, but if you're, what is it? You know, every presidential candidate or whatever goes and works in a does some community service at like a homeless shelter or a soup kitchen or whatever. Yeah, there's, yeah. There's some of that is is a little bit nauseating. The, the gesture's great. Don't get me wrong, but some of that. But but then the gesture becomes it's it's I check that box of virtue signaling right right. Um, There's a, again 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 I'm not judging I'm just saying this is an example right. of when the works are look at me look at how good of a person yeah. I am that's I think that's where that's part of what Jesus was talking about when he was saying to you know when you're praying you're not praying in, in public to to show how righteous you are there's something about there's something about that act that actually cancels itself out and becomes yes. vanity. You know. I wanted to go back to as well. I mean, you shared a little bit about your own experiences and in, in the like losing both of your parents. But I think for me, I kind of have a very one-to-one connection with the Wolfman in the sense that my own father a few years ago was diagnosed with stomach cancer. Initially, the prognosis was was very dire. Like we thought perhaps he might not live six months. That's about how long it took for my mother. It was about, it was about eight months for her to die of the diagnosis for brain cancer. But go on. Typically, stomach cancer is something that occurs in, typically it's an older person, okay. older than okay. my father, which my father was right, born six, in 60. So, you know, he was like 58 or gotcha. when this was all coming around. Um, so... You know, my father and I have a very, and he probably doesn't even know to the extent that we have a complex relationship because I don't always articulate it as such. But 
during this period, I, I didn't really feel anything. I see. Yeah. Very much. I think I probably, if anything, I felt guilty about not feeling. Yep. Yep. That's, that's about, about not feeling sad. Um, that's a, that's a, you, you get that all the time. And then, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm commiserating with you because of what I said about making jokes and, you know, um, my wife did this gently by worrying a little bit because I wasn't outwardly showing my grief. Yeah. And so you get, you get accused of, you see this, uh, I, I, I want you to come back to this, I'm sorry, but you see this, one of the reasons why I hate Nancy Grace, for example, and people like her when they look at these big trials, so much garbage about, about what the defendant looked like, what their face looked like, how, are they showing remorse, blah, right. blah, blah, yeah, blah, yeah, blah, yeah. all this armchair psychology bullshit. Yes, correct. That's I'm not point. saying that it's always wrong, True. but most of the time it is over the top hyperbole clickbait bullshit about, about like, oh, well, you know, oh, or like uh, this, this, this surrounds um, the John Benet Ramsey case. I've seen fucking a million documentaries on it. My wife, I call it her penchant for uh, murder porn, um, <laughs> for rape murder porn. She's always watched. She's always, it's always the most gruesome shit. And I don't think she's a, I don't think she's a proponent. She's it's not a, no, it, it's, it's a, a way of warding, It's a way of warding off the anxiety about. Yes, yeah, that's that's a good point. Probably, but but anyway, just this armchair bullshit about uh, showing grief. You, you can get attacked for it. You can. You're not normal. But anyway, yeah. yeah so you were feeling, but you yourself internalized some of this. You were feeling guilty, perhaps because of a little bit. I mean, I don't even know how much of it is, what's unconscious precisely, or if like I. Yeah. It's more like I don't feel I. I don't feel bad, but I should, or I, sh- I should, I should feel bad about not feeling bad. Yes. Is the guilt element about there's a guilt of not feeling bad. <laughs> yeah. There's a, I mean, that's part of the, the morning phase, part of this, this, and, and also always, always trying to use other people as a standard, you know, yeah. I mean, that's part of the, that's part of the imaginary realm that Lacan, as Lacan talks about it, right. We, there is an imaginary not in any normal sense, but I mean, specifically in the sense of using others as a mirror and a standard for what is normal, right? Like, is it, you know, how, how, well, I think about the, the ancient forms of grieving, right? Of rending your clothes, pouring, pouring ashes on your, on your, on your head, this it, it was much more ritualized right and to that extent more normalized but 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 the, but the, but at least there was a ritual for it so you didn't really have to yeah have you to, think have to constantly think am i being a normal person am i being a good person <laughs> right right oh that's... by am i showing enough grief right you know and and and, and 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 honestly that 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 sheds light back on the story of nora durst knocking over the coffee cup there is this sense of being seen of wanting to be looked at of wanting to be observed and she does something and and it's funny because the only two people that see the camera catches it we see it as the audience but the it's the what's his name it's the sheriff's daughter yeah who's it's jill jill and her friend jill and her friend they witness they they witness her do this they're the only ones i believe right right. correct yes they They see they see her knock the coffee off we see it too but supposedly Nora thinks no one sees it. 
so she can get away with it. But she wants them. She wants to be looked at. This acting out of uh, of wanting to be looked at, wanting to be recognized as as the one who has lost the most. There is something we we do we do see. There are some types of people, and I don't know if it's usually malicious. Sometimes it's just some people are annoying. Like my sister in law does this shit where if you have a headache, she's got a you know her spleen hurts or something. You know, like there's always this this one upsmanship of. Of oh you think you have it bad there is yeah. there is some shit about that but Nora is kind of trying to uh, to for her to be held up as the highest as the par excellence mourner she's lost the most and she's it's become you know normal for her to get that passively so she wants to enact it she wants that that little that little high of of being. Um, well, of sadly being the chosen one, right? There is there is some singularity to her, to her case. But, yeah, but go but go on go on. You you did you want to say more about? Yes. Uh, you, yeah. Yeah, and and I think really to contextualize this whole complex relationship with my father, you have to I have to discuss a little bit about um, you know when I was younger, even probably maybe kind kindergarten age at the oldest. So my dad was you know he's like he graduated high school and that's it. He had plenty of, he could have done anything, could have done anything, could have gone to college easily. My grandfather would have supported him in an, anything that he, any endeavor that he wanted to do. And he basically did nothing. <laughs> and so, and my dad was, wanted to be a musician and play in a band, etc. And he had long hair. My grandfather would like in my presence frequently call my dad like a fuck up and stuff like that. And it would when I was a kid, like it would really intensely hurt my feelings. Yeah. Hear my father disparaged in this way. Like it was a fucked up, weird I cannot, situation, I right? Like it's I, like, I can imagine. I'm supposed to love my dad and see my dad as this, but my grandfather's telling me this. Like my dad's, like, you know, it really fucked me up, I think, ultimately, in, in a sense, to ha hear those things. Or it definitely, at, very, at the very least, at the time, there was a certain tra traumatic element, almost to the point where, like, I would, it would almost make me cry to hear my grandfather talk about my dad in this way and disparage him. And so your, yeah, your ego ideal, right? Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it's if our fathers were, if our fathers are models, right. If our fathers are models for God and our fathers failed, what does that tell you about God? No, I mean, yeah, it's a <laughs> quote it's, fight club. Yeah. It's that, it's that identification that, that, you know, obviously in the Wolfman too, he said all he wants to do when he grows up is be like his dad. Yeah. To be, to be a gentleman. And the double-edged sword of that is, you know, his father, as we pointed out earlier, himself has these bouts of depression, has this yeah. moroseness, ha becomes uh, afflicted, one could say, with his own neurosis and his sadness. So uh, so there's something prophetic there, too. Wanting to be like dad also means being fucked up in the head. For yeah. me, it's the reverse. It's So as you can see, like that lends to this situation of I don't want to be I don't want to be like dad. We don't. Are, <laughs> Dad isn't my model for, for right. whatever, in a sense. Yep. Yeah. And we see only a, there's a tiny mention of this when Freud is talking about how at first when he's young, three, four, the sister is tormenting him, literally terrifying him with the, with the picture of the wolf and is, you know, fondling his genitals is 
there's something of a rivalry between them because she gets the father's love. She's more intelligent. She is also talking shit about his, we could say his real mother, the nanny, Nanya. Mm -hmm. She, she's constantly talking shit about Nanya, um, which has an effect on him. And we do see that he uh, takes this up in his own sadistic way because we hear on his fourth birthday, he's expecting the two lots of presents. And what does he do? He, he doesn't oh, yeah, torment. He's pissed. He, but, but he doesn't torment his, 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 his real parents, right? He torments Nanya. He torments his, his little, his nanny. And his nanny is the one that threatens him with castration, not his father or his mother. So there's something when, 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 when Freud, Freud's very perceptive to say that na the nanny is, is really a father substitute. Yeah. She has, obviously she has shades of mother substitute, but, but I, I think that Freud doesn't really call him a, call her a mother substitute that often or as forcefully as a father substitute because the nanny seems to be the primary mother. Anyway, all of that, uh, and I'll, I'll hand it back to you. I just wanted to say the one indication we're given is that when, 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 uh, when the Wolfman is in his teen years and starts to become more intelligent, he and his sister stop really becoming rivals and they become friends. And one of the things they bond over is their, I don't know how it's put. It's not, it's their resistance it's part. They, they start to resent and resist their parents. So you can see that, like you were saying, there is a moment in Wolfman that we don't hear about, which is, well, we, we hear about a little bit. When does the father, when, it, when, when does Wolfman defend the father? When does the Wolfman cling to this father identification, this, this ego ideal of the father as gentleman, to such an extent that he critiques God? God's not a good father substitute. You know, the real father is Joseph. The real father, you know, Joseph, uh, what do you call it? Jesus is a stepfather? I don't know what the fuck you call it. <laughs> right. The first, uh, Jesus is cuck father. Yeah, his cuck father. Um, but we do see that by the time he's 10, one of the things that helps him get over the one of the things that helps him to start to identify positively the father with a substitute is the German tutor who has a big influence on him. And again, as I said at the start, there's not enough emphasis put on the search for a true language, a mother tongue or whatever you want to call it, or the language of the fatherland, as Freud even puts it too. There's not enough emphasis put on this search for the proper language to translate into, to speak in, to express oneself in. So, so yeah, but, but go on, keep going. I, I keep interrupting you. So just to go back, it's like my grandfather would sort of disparage my father and my company when I was growing up. It was very upsetting. Even honestly talking, thinking about it kind of almost brings tears to my eyes now recounting it. Um, but furthermore, like to really to bring this back to the the Wolfman is that I'm an only child and I would stand there is an inheritance, you know, potential there with my father, since I am the only child in particular. Right. And it's very, you know, I would just say that in a financial sense, I would be I would have been better off. And I thought this, too, at the time when my dad was like the stuff was emerging was, you know, I would be better off if I literally would be better off if my father was dead yeah and yep. yeah i don't know if trying to if thinking about that or even and i've ver i think i've even verbalized this to you and kind of our own like private conversations and it's like 
many months ago, you, you, you said something like this. Is that, is that a defense mechanism about my own? Is there a certain confessional element to that, that, you know, I'm supposed to be right. Is there a virtue signaling in being in the, in the being honest about that? Well, I wouldn't say that that's a, that there's, there's a virtue signaling and there's actually, actually being honest and saying it. Is, right. But is that right? Is that, the, but what I'm saying is that the good, per, is that the desire to be a good person is to at least explicitly state it rather than try to repress that, that speech. You know, it, it's funny. It, 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 it seems like it would uh, vary from, from person to person you talk to. Some yeah. people would say you're being honest and that's good. Right. I think in this context of psychoanalysis, it's very good that instead of repressing that, you you allow it to permeate your consciousness. Yeah. And and we see that the Wolfman himself can only partially mourns his sister by making that crude joke. Oh well, I'm going to be the only I'm going to be the sole inheritor. There's, right. and, and and when thinking about his father being dead and inheriting, the yeah, there is a but he tells it as a joke. And for Freud, that is always a temporary lifting of the repression. Yes, correct. So there's always a way to trick the censor. And I'm thinking about that too in your context of <clears throat> the joke. Like, yes. is, the jo- is the joke a way of, I don't know, w- warding off the, what does the joke do there for you, you know? Well, in your mother, example. Mother sucks cocks in hell. Um, it's both a, <laughs> a, re- a, re- a, a, a reference to a famous um, line right, in, yes. in a movie. I don't really quite believe in heaven or hell but i'm just saying in the and, sense and, and yeah so, but I, like, yeah, so what's there's, the... an, there's an absurdity to it you know there's an absurdity not only to blaspheming your you know your your mother you know you're supposed to honor thy father and thy mother right yeah it's one of the commandments and so i think that that's my way of honoring her is not to idolize and idealize her as though she gotcha okay as though she couldn't be but there's there's also a social trans aggressiveness too yes, right? That, right that other people too will be like oh well, how could you say that about your about your mom yeah yeah because it's, it's funny there's because an enjoyment because precise, yeah. precisely that's the knee-jerk reaction right i mean they're, they're you know not all jokes are just transgressive and even this one isn't just about transgressing but it's about like there's obviously the what about in the sense of like the pro the quote about the prohibition that's immediately lifted and and then immediately returned or whatever well, like in freud, that sense what do you would you say yeah i mean freud seems to be pessimistic about about jokes in that sense at least when he talks about that it's it's a double edge right there's a benefit of being able to trick the sensor and bypass um the unconscious the, these repressed associations are able to bypass the brain to a consciousness it's i think for freud it's that like you said there is an aspect also of a defense mechanism and, and, and Foucault gets very good here, too, about with we have this revisionism where we think that the Victorian period uh, sexuality wasn't talked about. No, I mean, like if we look, Freud's a prime example. If we look about it, sexuality was talked about ad nauseum and it became this, uh, it, it developed all these different discourses that, that centered around it. I think Foucault's point is that there's a way uh, in which knowledge uh, not only ha- strengthens power, um, but there's also this way of reinstating the repression itself through the discourse of knowledge. Uh, Ooh, yeah, that's through, good. The, through the university discourse or the master discourse, you know, we that's about it in terms of Lacan. But yeah, with Freud, I think he sees that clearly that that the working through 
in the morning and the working over of repressed unconscious associations, etc., that joking isn't enough. It kind of stops halfway. I think gotcha. before. I think okay. that's a more optimistic way of saying it. Freud's, <laughs> but, but 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 you know, with, with I think with Freud that it's. I do think that with parapraxies, with slips of the tongue, with with jokes, there is this way of bypassing. It, it gets back to what I said last time about detours. That that the jokes is a kind of detour. It's finding a language. It's finding this roundabout way to to make something pass through these registers, you know, the unconscious, the preconscious, the conscious, et cetera. And I think for Freud, the joke is not enough, right? It's, it's kind of when he even talks about talking cure, it's not enough for the hysteric or the neurotic to simply remember or to, or to stop reenacting in the present what it should just be remembered in the past, right? In terms of the compulsion to repeat mm-hmm. it, it, it there more has to be done yeah on the flip side you can't necessarily merely fill in some of the associations in the link that were destroyed and because there is because like with jokes which which do fill in links or cut some out for effect it's not that's not enough i think for freud right you get you have to go further it has to be it can't stick with that one discursive mechanism, right? We, there, we have to link up the different, I mean, for those in Guattari, it'd be, it'd be about truly constructing a, a collective assemblage of enunciation <clears throat> instead of just having separate pieces or even analyzing it into separate pieces, right? They all have to, there, there is a machine and there are these machines that are plugged in and they're, and they're working together. And if you, and so jokes are, are, there is something cathartic about them and that's in their benefit, right? There is a catharsis of affect. I think that Freud could do better here or, or Freud could be more consistent here in thinking of jokes as not merely a lifting and tricking of the censor, but there's, there is an ab reaction as he would call. There is a, a venting. There is a uh, catharsis of, uh, uh, of affect and it's just that for freud if psychoanalysis were merely catharsis then hypnosis would work Hypno- then we could have stopped with hypnosis and stopped with suggestion you know freud himself says that like the old way of doing things through hy- hypnosis and his you know freud abandoned hypnosis because the repressions would come back you, you couldn't just have them remember in that trance state and therefore say, here's what you said in the hypnosis. It's not enough, right? You don't work through it there. He gave up hypnosis and began a method where he would put his fingers on the, on the temples of the patient mm-hmm. and he would suggest to them. And I mean, this in the strong sense, he would suggest like, you know, these were just childhood experiences. These are only fantasies. These are, these are just your way of coping and that didn't work either. So he had to give up hypnosis and what is probably called the cathartic method. It's not to say that there isn't catharsis in the talking cure and in psychoanalysis as a whole, but it's just one piece. Yeah. Right? It's, it's not enough. Gotcha. I think it's interesting too, just to go back to this whole inheritance connection with myself and the rat man or uh, Wolfman, is that uh, it's funny that here I would just say in my in my relationship to consumerism 
I feel like I've definitely had a bout of spend a hot like spend a holic type symptom where it's about val- feeling good through seeking accumulation or whatever of goods or like seeking this the satisfaction I guess through purchase trying to fill these emotional gaps or whatever psychics gaps with with objects right right in the sense of my father <laughs> it was the opposite it was because freud says right your economic decisions should be based in reality and not in libidinal matters. So typically when it comes to money, it does have a libidinal aspect to it. But here, like in this context of my father and his potential death, it was the reality principle <laughs> triumphed in the sense that, you know, I was more worried about libidinally, the ele- like the emotional loss or grief or whatever, like that was, that was secondary to the, re- the real benefits, the material benefits of my father's potential death and my receipt of inheritance. Right. Yeah. And, and, and for me, one of the things that I am so happy about with my mother and father and the way that they actually passed very quickly and suddenly is not the, it's not like it was a car crash, but once things started to go wrong, it went wrong fast. And I right. actually think that that's, that does make mourning maybe more accelerated and, and intense, but, but, I, I, I am very, very grateful that they didn't pass like my grandmother and like my wife's grandmother, because those ladies, those grandmothers both like an extended went, convalescence went through type an extended, they down, they, they kept progressively down spiraling with uh, Alzheimer's. Oh, and so they're, and so they, their personalities completely changed from, yeah. the, from the sweet old ladies to, uh, too violent, verbally right. abusive, oh, man. not rough. recognizing Oof. things. So in that sense, now mourning, mourning those with Alzheimer's, especially those that have long progressions like that, there is a mourning that, that goes when, when they're still alive. These people are alive, yeah, but, right. but their personalities have died. Right, yeah. And that's, a, that's its own bag of yes. can of worms. Yeah. Um, so I am glad that when my parents passed, that they passed quickly. And, and one might be like, on the one hand, you might be like, oh, well, do you want your parents to die? No, you didn't want them to suffer. Right, yes. And you don't want to suffer thinking of yes. them suffering. <laughs> right? You, 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 you yourself are... I mean, literally, you you are. It hurts to think about them suffering. I mean, even my the way my dad passed. You know, um, he was in hospice, and you know, he was kept basically uh, in a on morphine. He was kept in an unconscious state, uh, yeah. and he's not given. They don't have him hooked up to fluids and whatever because that's just going to prolong it. Yeah. Uh, so oh. he 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 starved to death and uh, dehydrated to death um, oh, fuck. and suffocated too because he it was it was you know his his had congestive heart failure and so he's he's breathing now you can think in the moment oh that's fucking terrible but we have the modern technology of morphine and so he didn't necessarily suffer through that his body yeah. was shutting down right and so you would you could say oh well it's terrible why you know why aren't they giving them fluids well that will just prolong that suffering the so, suffering yeah so in that sense i am very happy even if i think about it abstractly that, that yeah that's horrifying the way he died the fact that he wasn't conscious during it though is the consolation yes you know right. you 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 know that they're not 
suffering when they when they die. But 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 I guess to to link the rat man and the wolf man, both of them are, you know, in a convoluted way, having these wishes and these repressed wishes of the father being dead. And the rat man, too, isn't just about I can fuck with my please, but it all it is also that if the if the, my father's dead, I will inherit you know, what he's saved for me. And so like for you and I, who don't have children, this relationship to money and not saving, I think it's a reality of, you can't take that shit with you. Yeah. You know, I mean, who are you saving up for? Potentially a, potentially for a charity and these other things. And yeah, I mean like, but you and I are not, not well off in, 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 in a meaningful sense. I mean, we're, we're, we're doing okay. And we, we, we enjoy, but, but, but I'm like you. I mean, like I, I'm, I'm. I don't have to think about uh, saving up to for a child. And if I did, I would. I think I would th- think about these things more deeply. Right. But there, but there are times when it's like, when it's like, yeah, I would like as a. I mean, we're all part of the capitalist system, for better or worse, at least in this country and most countries. And it's like, well, I'm not getting off looking at my balance. So, you know, but there is still obviously a, a reality principle in thinking of the future and, and paying off recurring debts, you know, those gimmicks called bills that come in the mail. <laughs> That's what Stone Cold Steve Austin calls them, these, these gimmicks called, called <laughs> bills. I always thought, oh, what? A gimmick? Uh, but yeah, we, we, do, we, do, we do have a minimum of reality principle by, by postponing certain pleasure. I mean, like the thought of spending of emptying the bank account in one splurge is I think not as enjoyable as being able to eat the next day or, or pay off the rent, you know, at the first of the month and, right. uh, and, and have power and electricity. But it's, and, it's also that at the same time, like the ner- there's a pathology pathology to that too, or there can be in the sense of, I know that I have these necessities, but I'm going to spend this money on this. And that transgression drugs. sometimes sometimes drugs doesn't even I'm, have I'm, 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 doesn't even have to be drugs just to draw from my own experience I think like I'm just I'm just giving one example <laughs> an honest example sometimes yeah I yeah. mean go on for me like clothes became this okay. thing that I was really caught up in spending money with to a, the level of almost an addiction at one point that's interesting that's a lot of times associated with stereotypes with women and right and shoes right you know. Stuff like that. Um, but it's almost like this, the prohibitive element of it. So that it's like the transgression of what you know. This libidinal, the libidinal overwhelms the, the rational. Yeah, and to a certain extent, you don't need, at a certain point in your wardrobe, you, you've covered the basics. Yes, yes exactly. You know what I mean? Yeah. So you don't, so it's not really a need. It's, it's I mean, and, and, and some of this is with the logic of drugs, although I think with drugs there there's a there's at least the attendant high and and there's there is a, a type of more immediate satisfaction but with 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 the clothes that it, it, it is a very futural type of enjoyment right of, of whether it be planning out your war, your wardrobe for that week or for, or for the next day or yeah. just spontaneously to, to be able to have the wealth of choices you know for me i think that never took hold because even if i had a fairly broad swath of clothes to choose from i would usually i I would have predictable choices that i favored and so there would be all kinds of clothes that i would end up telling my parents like hey please give these like you don't have to throw them out but at least 
take them to church and, and, and donate them, put them in the donation box and stuff. Cause I'm not going to wear this shit anymore. Yeah. I've outgrown it. Sometimes I outgrew it literally because there were <laughs> many times where I had crazy growth spurs, but I had also outgrown it just in, in terms of fashion, just in terms of my right. libidinal choices. So going back to my father's whole situation is that I would be, I mean, it would be like light. It would effectively be, I mean, life changing. My uh-huh. life could potentially improve dra- a drastic improvement, potentially a severe shift I, I, in my ability you, to. Are you speaking financially, or or, yes. or, is, it, or is it broader it's than that? Is straight, it also just straight up finance? No, okay. just financially, I would be, I would be way better off if my father had passed away. But on the flip side, what's actually occurred is he. He goes to chemo once every two weeks. He's still around. He's he lost a lot of weight. He's got a, issues with eating because he had a lot of his stomach removed. But he's still going around. I mean, he parties probably more than I do at this point, <laughs> hey, which hey, is kind of kind of hey, cool. You know, and like, honestly, I can't, he's earned it, right? At a certain yeah, yeah. point, in old. I, I I mean, Deleuze too talks about this in old age. One of the benefits, right? At a certain point, society lets you go, and it's like, all right, yeah. go have, go have fun. Yeah, I mean. And when you say he lost a lot of weight, I assume you meant he was a bigger guy, or yeah, he had got, gained quite a bit of weight previous prior to That's being di- I mean, he, prior he to was, being diagnosed. And I mean, he went down. He was never like a was big. He, was he obese, fat, or just he had gained up? To, he had gone up to like two hundred and twenty pounds, maybe. And after the surgery, he went down to more like one thirty. Okay, that's a big. That's a or twenty or right. And how tall is he? He's like five eight. So, so uh, yeah, I could see that. Yeah, that's a significant two, amount of weight. Two, two, two twenty would two twenty would be would be yeah would be. But typically be throughout his yeah, but typically like he didn't have issues with weight primarily, other than like you know like a beer gut or whatever. Right? Yeah, beer gut. Right. I'm still lucky that I don't have one of those. My my metabolism is like I don't know. It's like a hamster in a wheel. It's just <laughs> the most weight I've gained is from eating fucking southern fried food that my wife's <laughs> always trying to throw at me so but i've I'm, I've, I've kept pretty pretty good i will say one last thought on the that passage that we've gotten so much out of about the reality principle and the pleasure principle i think that's that's a better way to phrase it i don't think freud had come up with those terms yet in at the time of this publication but he's obviously thinking about it and yeah. this notion that our relationship to money if it's normal because we have to put that in scare quotes <laughs> it's not meant to be Libidinally few infused, but realistic, right. and we have to see there this tension between the pleasure principle and the reality principle, and this notion that the reality principle, and in some way, isn't in conflict with the pleasure principle. It just defers it and delays it for for a better pleasure to a certain extent. And this is this is where I would, you know, bring up that the stuff that you talked about earlier with the Taoist erotics, right. With, with the rhythm of not coming and trying yes. to, trying to steal the, uh, the, the feminine essence in the, uh, in the, in the act of intercourse and holding back in the tantric sense, uh, one's, one's ejaculation. And, you know, it's hard for guys, right. I mean, like we, you know, we, Those, have to, we, we have to, we have to reload after, uh, yeah, after coming, you know those you, uh those, those cummies are burning a hole in my pocket. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I mean, you ladies, you know, if if uh, if if you can, if you're lucky enough, because I assume there are all kinds of ladies that may have never had a 
I mean, they, they, they had to exist, right? They had to exist, right? They're, I mean, ladies that never had an orgasm, I assume, or never had an orgasm in sexual intercourse or in foreplay, right. um, which is sometimes even easier. You bring in toys and stuff. So, uh, so you know, for you ladies who can come pretty much ad infinitum, if if you if you if if y'all figure out the you know with your partner or by yourself the the some of the tricks and stuff, but but us guys, yeah, we gotta we gotta hold it back. We gotta. You're going to struggle <laughs> against the pleasure, right? There is more of a kind of struggle. Against, <laughs> that's true, right? Against, uh, that's uh, funny. Uh, I mean, you know, it's, but it's, it's, it's even a part of, you know. I mean, the stereotype is thinking about different things to distract yourself from coming. Right? Yeah, yeah, that's that's part of it. Um, it's There is obviously there's a erectile dysfunction, which is normally physiological, but sometimes psychological. Um, but there's also, there's always coming too early, right? I mean, like, and and sometimes... You know, for me, I find like nowadays I don't I don't masturbate very often. You know, it may, it may not seem like it from the the shit and composts and stuff, but I you know sometimes masturbate a few times a month. You know, once a week, something like that. When I do, you know, have sex, it can sometimes it can be much harder uh, not to come early, yeah. just because it's it's you know what I'm saying, right? Like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you've probably gone lengths of time and and it, but if you're if you're masturbating one two three four five times a day like i used to when i was a teenager and stuff it's a lot easier not to come faster right because it's i don't know if it's a desensitization thing but it's just like your body's like yeah we already came a few times you know in the last uh how many hours like we're <laughs> we're, we're good you can keep going they only don't have to come there's there is something to that about i don't know if it's muscle memory or the, it's like inverse muscle memory right anyway that was a comic excursus. I have a I have a supercharged libido, for sure, and it's not just as far as sex; like it's consuming anything. Like I have a desire that is I have a potent desire for everything, for pleasure. Really, honestly, that I guess that's the. You're you're a real Sternarian. You're real Sternarite. I'm driven by. I don't the, know. Does Stern talk delights. about that stuff? Does Sterner uh, talk about just well a little pleasure? bit? A little bit, but he's more so. His critique is sort fuck of the, fuck the police. <laughs> yeah, well, that yeah, that too. <laughs> we'll save Sterner for next time. But uh, the, the thing about Freud saying for normal people, our relationship with money should be should be should follow the reality principle. He he kind of points out in the same sentence how that is how when money is linked to shit that becomes difficult. Yes, right because. Because it's already linked to this defecate, this defecating pleasure, this excremental pleasure, and I think the Deleuze and Guattari go a long way in Antiedipus to kind of show, just as Leotard did, that you know that when money and more specifically capital becomes a reality, I mean, th- this is where I mean to speak about it in not not in their terms, but just in general terms, this is where there is again a double-edged sword, it's a blessing and a curse that pleasure kind of pervades everything in, in the sense in which consumption is even is, suffering, yeah. Well, and Mark's pointed that out too, right? Suffering is is is, is, is its own way of self-enjoyment. But, I mean our Nora Durst example, I think. Well, okay. That's Durst yeah. And there's the other scene where she hires the prostitute um to not her, to yeah. not to fuck her, but to shoot her. Uh, with a gun, with a magnum, and she's wearing a bulletproof vest. Yeah, bulletproof vest. You know, and 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 obviously there is 
there is some risk that the the prostitute can be a little shaky and shoot her in the face, I suppose. But there's that's also part the, of the that's part of the enjoyment. I think there's part of the enjoyment. Yeah, it's kind of like being uh, what is the the circus performers being uh, on the spinning wheel, getting knives thrown at their face. Yeah. But there's also that there seems to be this moment, this two or three seconds where she is completely unconscious, right? Where yes. she she simulates death, right? So yeah, but but I guess the your point about the inheritance, we see this in Wolfman, we see this in Ratman. We don't see it in Schraber because he's so much of an older man, but we see it inverted because it is part of the um part of the fantasy, part of the psychosis about part of the becomings woman that he undergoes is the inability of he and his wife to have a child. So there's right. no one to inherit his estate. Right. And, and, and I think that Ooh, as a substitute, you that's get what really I'm saying? Yes, right? yes, so, yes, yes. So as, so as a substitute for that, he enters this cosmic relationship with God and he's part of his psychosis is that all the humans on earth have been, have been, have departed, right? Like, you know, they've, they've been, uh, they've been, departed and the only humans left are really not humans but like mannequins or automatons or fleetingly improvised men as he calls NPCs. them yeah and they're npcs and so he has to part of the fantasy of becoming woman virgin mary or whatever uh or not virgin really you know what i mean is having this immaculate conception of repopulating the earth in his own image and god's image and, and schraber's image is to have is to have a legacy and to have you know the children that he doesn't have to someone someone to inherit the schraber you know what's interesting here i mentioned this to you i think via dm but i was thinking about how how culturally widespread this tie between shit and money is or maybe maybe george R. R. martin is just a savvy writer in the sense that he this ties into spoiler alert for game of thrones or a song of ice and fire fans for like the third book and probably what the third or fourth season is that Tyrion Lannister kills his father and he does this when the father is on the privy and the father cannot shit Tywin Lannister cannot shit and Tyrion confronts See, that him doesn't, that doesn't come up in the show but in the book he, he's constipated Great. So he, okay, he, hasn't been able, he hasn't been able to shit for a while um, there's theories about he was poisoned etc by the Red Viper of Dorne but I won't go too far afield into that more so to the point is that Tyrion shoots him in the stomach with a crossbow bolt with a bolt and then when when he does actually die when Tywin Lannister dies he does shit and the joke made at this death is that in the end Tywin Lannister did not indeed shit gold which had been a common Westerosi kind of joke Right. was that Tywin Lannister shits gold because they had the gold mines in Castile Rock, which is their kind of... Is it, in, is the, it, in the Westerlands, they had gold mines that effectively made them one of the most wealthy and powerful families so in Westeros. It's not just the Lannister shit gold, it's Tywin Lannister in particular? Tywin Lannister, yeah, he, Tywin Lannister must, must shit gold. Now, later we, we, we do hear that those gold mines run out and they really have to get the backing of the... Now, that's well, they, all... They are, they that's already had all, the backing of the Bravosi banks, right? Right. So, yeah, but that's all kind of fucked up 
that's kind don't of, worry about it. I, w- I, w- I wouldn't go too deeply into that way that okay. they did it on the show because it's okay. That's they're fine. kind of fucking it up on the show, but it is interesting <laughs> in the sense that right, just the at least at least this notion of shit and money having a certain relationship is it's kind of in the geist, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. From Martin, it's it's a from, it's a relation it's a relationship. <laughs> for Martin to draw on that, right? Right. It's in the geist. And we do know speaking. that that when you die, you you do um, lose you 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 evacuate your your bowels. That's just you, you lose uh, the 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 unity of the uh, well the unity the the control of the the machines break down, right? I mean, it's, <laughs> it's all just so yeah. That's uh, that's that that actually does make make sense. And um, also in the sense of inheritance here, it's also interesting to Tyrion because he is the likeliest person to inherit the wealth of the family because the brother Jamie is he can't he can't inherit of, he can't inherit right he becomes he's uh, part of the yeah he's part of the king's guard he's prohibited from having children and Cersei obviously is the female she can't so it's a patriarchal society patriarchal system right so she can't and she's not, technically and inherit not when there's become another the male heir. child not not when there's another male child right right exactly and so. and and uh, obviously the tension surrounds you know uh, when Tyrion says cripples are always bastards in their father's eyes I mean, right so so Tyrion is not favored as the heir by any means right and that's part of the tension with with he and his father yeah. Is this way of being treated as a second class citizen, so to speak, second class heir, just as the wolf man. Right. And, and Cersei, the sister, would probably be she's um she is more so the father's well, no, no, no. I guess that's in the in the novel really oh. in the novels they say that Tyrion, there's an aunt that says Tyrion is the real heir to Tywin in the sense of in the sense of, I guess psychology like person, yes 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 correct personality. psychology but like in in the actual affect in a sense it's like cersei seems to cersei's be, a cool, die die hard bitch. she's a cutthroat yeah she's cutthroat yeah <laughs> i i, I yeah. she's in all about sense, the family and that's since cersei is her cersei should have been the boy and Tyrion right the girl, right just, just like the wolf man wolf man anna his sister should have been the boy and he should have been the the girl and this gender confusion this this queering and yeah, I mean, and I would just say that 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 now this may be different in the book, but what makes Tyrion or lose it and, and kill his father finally decide to finally have the courage to is is Tyrion Tywin sleeping with uh, Tyrion's love, right? Right. Um, that, that now they had be, become estranged, obviously, but but there's there's this in Tywin not even treating it like uh like it was anything. He was just yeah. fucking. He's just fucking another whore. And, uh, and I think that, that that type of relationship crystallizes their, their uh, that type of event crystallizes their relationship, how he's always treated Tyrion's love objects, right? You know, when, when, when Tyrion is, is taken to the brothel to lose his virginity um, and his father finds out about it, you know, that Tyrion's fallen in love with the, with the whore, what does he do, right? He, he rubs it in his face. He, ha- he has all the... He has all the all the Kingsmen or all of his soldiers, all the Lannister soldiers, all the yeah. Lannister soldiers. Uh, fuck, fuck her, run a train on her, and and, and he's that, forced to watch. 
he's forced, forced to watch. To watch. Yeah, he's forced to watch, and that is you know not the primal scene, but 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 crystallizes a type of primal scene for Tyrion and his father, and and you and you, and you see the sum in Ratman right with with the father prohibiting him his uh, his his love object. Exactly. It's not it's not as gruesome or, or, or perverse or whatever. But 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 again, I mean, it, 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 it's analogous. It's analogous with this prohibition. Interesting here, too, is that Tywin, he has this outward effect of being violently against whores, but he, yet he he's caught with one. Right. Like yeah. that's the interesting little reversal or like. It's, it's the same with Ratman, right? Ratman has this fear and disgust and hatred of prostitutes and his part of that is the you know the rat is plague plague is syphilis syphilis is not just penis but prostitute yeah and yet at the same time he's going out and spreading contagion to these little girls that look up to him as an uncle right yeah and he he's in a certain sense you know the whore oh very um, good I like and that. and this is why he this is again his his fetish with no amount of ironing and cleaning the bills will decontaminate the I think for for Ratman it's not just money equals shit it's money circulation of money equals prostitution ooh right <laughs> ooh that's good like the circulation of money and 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 this is the famous banned cover art for um dead kennedys right which which is a metaphor for capitalism with the what is it the repeating images of the dicks in the ass everybody's got a dick in their ass and putting everyone's fucking and getting fucked and this which is this you goes see this back anti- to leotard it goes back to leotard goes back to anti-oedipus they kind of make this equation too in capitalism you know one is fucking and getting fucked with wolfman it's insofar as I identify with Christ, does Christ fuck or get fucked by the father? Does Christ shit or demiraculate the shit? This is why I said, you know, with this identification of Christ, this, this, you know, Freud keeps wanting to make it this homosexual desire to be fucked by the father. But I think that his desire for punishment, this masochism is, is also has this logic of being killed by the father right, of being sacrificed. And there's a jealousy, again, with the sister, you know, I, I kind of put this in the notes, but the sister is the one who kills herself. The sister is the one that the father identifies with. And, and I mean, Christ, to a certain extent, just like Socrates, if you, if you look at the narrative, there is this sense in which they can both flee. They can physically flee the town, flee the city, flee the area, and run away from their impending death. Socrates has this whole philosophical spiel for why it is. I think it's because Plato wanted the philosopher to be crucified by Athens. There's a, there's a denunciation of democracy there. With Christ, you know, he's got to fulfill the meta-narrative of saving humanity, of dying for, for the sins. So yeah, circulation of money, circulation of shit, circulation of debt, circulation of sin. Debt becomes infinite, right? I mean, that's that's how Nietzsche reads the Christ sacrifice. And, um, and I do think that the Christ being connected to the lamb figure and um, also, you know, Abraham given, being given the goat instead of Isaac, sometimes it's a lamb, sometimes it's a goat. This notion of a sacrificial animality of Christ, we see this in the, in the epidemic that sweeps through the, the sheep herd 
and all the sheep dying. There is, you know, so death. This is where Freud being a Hegelian to a certain extent, uh, or just a German, or just a thinker, <laughs> where the, the white wolves becomes the white bed sheets and the white underclothes of the parents in the doggy style position in the primal scene, but also the white sheet Oh yeah, they, the cotton. The, huh? the, the, the or the no, white, not cotton. The, well, cotton of, of the of the Wool. sheet, but 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 we also have the white sheet that that covers the shroud, right. the shroud that covers the the dead. So the white becomes death too. In the end, you can basically make everything into with Freud. You can make everything into sex or death or both, right? You know, if you it's six degrees, but <laughs> but I, but I do think that. In Ratman, at least, the circulation of money is 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 prostitution, and that's why the 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 money has to be iron and steam cleaned, and as though one could, um, well, as though one could erase the equation, as though one could uh, somehow erase the equation and, and get rid of the anality and get rid of the sexuality inherent in um, in money and capital and, and all these other things, as though one could erase the libidinal side. And Freud kind of says that this is part of being normal is like trying to erase the libidinal side of, of money. And I think that for Deleuze and Guattari, this is a better way of phrasing this. It's, it's like it's, it's intensely libidinal. It's intensely a part of fantasy. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's intensely um, a part of the makeup of desire, which is productive, right? Only one facet of which is consumption, consummation. So acquisition. Yeah. Acquisition. I mean, yeah, this is, I've always wanted to do a, like a study of my wife. She's fascinated with some of these, as I said, not just the rape murder porn, but she's also fascinated with um, compulsions. So one of her favorite shows is she loves intervention, right? But she also loves hoarding or hoarders. There's also a show called hoarding, but hoarders is, is, is a better show. It's a better, and, (laughs) and, 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 and hoarders, I, I've always wanted to, to, to sort of, you know, do a kind of a case, well, take the whole series, I guess, and look at the, at the different, you know, there is, not all of them are obsessive compulsive. Some of them are, many of them are, I would say, but not all of them are. And, and a lot of times the hoarding follows after some sort of trauma, not necessarily parental, not necessarily sexual. Sometimes like one really severe case of hoarding somebody's house burns down and so you lose all this shit that you've become attached to and and, and then hoarding itself becomes this drive or you know growing up in poverty right and and then you know and then that becomes that becomes a drive to acquire another thing is uh, i do i remember one case I, of um of, hey of, i was of, thinking about yeah, you know, my example i was thinking about actually i have a good uh, example of this is maybe that's what my clothing addiction was all about because like as a kid i was kind of ashamed not having like you know i wanted nikes and like yes nice clothes and i had i got clothes from walmart that that has class implications that has you get bullied for that kind of shit you get known as the poor kid which becomes an object of ridicule i mean kids are kids kids are merciless yeah they're merciless but there's a logic to the to the cruelty and it is a it is part and parcel of um of at least an undercurrent, if not a main current in society in different forms of ostracization and different forms of, I mean, again, Nora Durst being ostracized, she's, she's extimate, right? She's innermost 
in, in the kernel of trauma and yet sort of an exception, you know, outside, you know, and so there is this being set apart, being alienated. I think ostracized is better than saying alienated here because that, you know, has so many more connotations. But yeah, I guess the the last part of the hoarding too is there's there, there, are, there are more than one examples of um, children growing up either with parents or step-parents or foster homes that that there's this cruelty in breaking their toys or taking them away. And sometimes it's siblings. Sometimes there is, Lucy Kay talks about this, talks about this joke, you know, he has two daughters and the older daughter, the younger daughter breaks the older daughter's toy, her favorite toy. And the older daughter asks, basically begs, demands Lucy Kay to, to break one of her sister's favorite toys, right? As like, retribution and justice and, and these other things. So anyway, that's, I think that, that, that we can see some of that with the story you brought up, Wolfman pitching a fit, right. uh, his sister getting money. Your stuff about gathering clothes and, and, and relating it back to, to childhood is very poignant. And, um, and there's also this, this need, knowing that in polite society, we don't, you know, unless we're in a nudist colony, like we have to, we have to dress up our bags of flesh. We have to yeah. dress up this black hole we have to dress up this nothingness that, that we are as, as egos. And, um, and sometimes it's for catching, sometimes it's, it's sexual courtship, right? Like, yes, exactly. Like, like if you look at the sexual life of birds, you know, it's so fascinating that the, the female birds are the ugly ones. They're the plain ones. Right. It's the male birds that are fucking, they're the ones that have the swag. The bird Part of paradise of, and mm-hmm. their little dances and their little beautiful feathers are just, it's amazing. I've I wonder never about, watched Planet yeah. of Earth and seen those no, uh, rituals or f- just. Yes, I've seen some of them. One of my want, favorite aspects yeah. of the whole series was that those little vignettes. And I, I wonder about peacocks, whether females are as beautiful as male peacocks. They, they might be, be an exception. There might be some exceptions that prove the rule. Uh, but for right. the most part, the, the males are the beautiful ones and the males are the ones with the with the singing the best singing capabilities because it's tied to courtship because the male is the one responsible for craft. Even, even their ability to craft a nest is part of the judging that the female Mm -hmm. comes in lured in by the song and sees the, you know, Quattro goes through all of this. I don't have to go back over it, but you know, part of that too, of of dressing up our black hole is, is, is wearing our sexuality, sometimes covering it up too. I mean, because, we don't always want to be objectified. I mean, women obviously have to deal with this more than, than men, but it wasn't very long ago that the logic, you know, when women did dress alluringly, you would hear all too often this notion that they were, they were asking for it or, or even in laws, even in courts of law with rape cases, what, what was she wearing? Right. Hopefully that, that type of logic is being, is, withering away but i wouldn't be surprised if it's if it's still it may be suppressed but it's probably more prevalent prevalent than we would like to believe but i mean in the 90s growing up for you and me i i I have very intense memories of of hearing this all the time about justifications of rape and what what was she wearing yeah she she was asking for it right and that kind of thing and i remember being very strongly affected by that when I was five, six, you know, when you're, when you're really first starting to go past the first stages of 
your childhood sexual theories and you're starting to think about what adults are doing, what, not just inside the family, but like on TV and, and representations in literature and in stories. And you start to learn about rape. You start to learn about chastity belts, this whole possessiveness and jealousy and these other things. And it, I think it has a lot more effect than, well, for me, it had a lot more effect than discovering porn. By the time that, that I was looking at porn, you know, 10, 11, 12, that didn't have the same type of effect by any means as the stories I heard growing up. It's horrifying shit. And knowing that I'm, I'm, I'm a boy, I'm supposed to be a man, and, and it's generally men who are saying this type of, of awful shit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, um, and it's like, are we the baddies? <laughs> it's that it's it literally is i mean it literally is are we are we the are we the baddies and it's i think that's a part of the of castration yeah not just the threat not just have it's it's insofar as i am man and of course it widens out insofar as i am white adult heterosexual able-bodied middle-class man you know all these privileges but but as a boy you know it's it's insofar as i will be a man <laughs> and, uh, what kind of man am i going to be what i mean like it's and, and it goes back to what you said about the ego ideal and and you not appreciating your grandfather diminishing your father like that and that being there is something to that right where you see why why is this normalized this why is male violence normalized why is um, male aggressive sexuality and rape normalized. Um, right. When Freud normalizes it, he puts it back into prehistory, into the evolution of the species prior to language acquisition, right? Uh, prior to Homo sapiens, he puts back the difference in the sexes and the drive to mastery as overcoming resistances from that for Freud, rape was something that he kind of sees as a matter of course in our prehistory. So even there, it's, it's kind of like, Oh fuck. That's damn. I mean, at least the birds, you know, they allow the, the woman to consent. And as far as we know, um, in terms of rape, you know, the dolphins rape. I think. Yeah. We know about this with dolphins. Yeah. So besides dolphins, uh, it seems that humans are what sets us apart. I think but, ducks as well, because the ducks will like, that's interesting. Duck penises are crazy, and they will puncture the when the ducks have sex. They'll puncture the woman duck or female duck, not necessarily even in their their like vagina, their vulva, or whatever the ducks would. Oh well, no, I ducks guess. ducks have cloaca. Yeah, you're probably right. But so they'll like us, they'll like us. burst through their stomach and like all this crazy shit, and like the duck penises are barbed, and it's okay. it's a really wow. crazy violent. Whole yeah, so aren't, aren't, aren't cat penises barbed? Yeah, I think you might be right, but and I, I know it, for sure, like the duck part of thing, it, ducks have a whole very right. aggressive sexual practice. It's I think pig, pig penises too, maybe. I don't know, but part of it's to um, facilitate the penis staying in yeah. right during yeah, that makes sense. ejaculation. It's to, uh, it's yeah. kind of, you know, it's you have little devices with the prongs and you have to push them down to pull it out, right? Like there's there's, there's, there's a real machinic uh, novelty. I mean, nature is, nature is kind of fascinating in that way. I think also the barbs and the cat penis, if I'm not wrong, stimulates ovulation. I'm not an expert in this subject, uh, <laughs> but you guys out there, you listeners out there, you know, correct, correct us if we're wrong, because I'm, I'm not going to go down that Google rabbit hole, <laughs> um, so, not to pun again. 
I did find the uh, I did find the the reference to lions that on one occasion at the age of six or seven, when he learned that he was to have a new teacher the next day, he dreamed the following night that his teacher was a lion and was approaching his bed, roaring loudly in the stance taken by the wolf in the picture, and once again awoke in terror. And I do think it's it's important to note that the, that stance on two legs like a man is important because he said that whenever he saw the wolf on all fours, it was never an object of terror, right? It's, it's always in the standing position, yeah, right? And supposedly in the coitus atergo and the doggy style, right? The, the father, you know, from behind. How about we end with the, this looks like a Schraber quote, quote his identification with his father, the castrator. Is that a Schraber quote? That was one. Um, I mean, he directly references Freud himself within the case directly references Schreber. Let me read at least that. In the latter of these meanings, a feminine tenderness finds expression, a readiness to give up one's masculinity if in exchange for it, one can be loved like a woman. Here then, we precisely have the same impulse towards God, which was expressed in unambiguous words in the delusional system of the paranoiac Schreber. I'm not going to try to pronounce Senate president. <laughs> yeah. Senate yeah. president. That's basically what, what it is. Yeah. With Schreber, we see something that we see with Wolfman, right? Because because Wolfman oscillates, is my father, is my real real father, the one whom I desire homosexually, as Freud says, or the one who I want to punish me. Is my father a, like Joseph? Son, you know, is Joseph and Mary? Cook? Is is or is, is he, he a beta male? Is he God? With Schreber, we see some of the same, but in a much more pronounced role. Is Fleshig and God become the persecutors? Right, Fleshig and God take on the father identification, so to speak. And we know about um, Schreber's father, as we said last time, with with his books on child rearing, famous for for these these mechanisms for 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 naughty children to behave correctly. So there's something there's something of Schreber's father that's completely different from Wolfman's father. You know, it's as though the Wolfman wanted masochistically to have these mechanisms of rearing and correction, I think is really the word we're looking for. Discipline and punish, right? He something he didn't get from from his father, but something to which he sees Christ being submitted to by God. As I said last night, you know, does is does Christ because Joseph and Mary do have a a child later? Is it Jude? James, I believe, is one. Or is James? So does does Christ see? Uh, is there a primal scene right where where Christ sees sees Joseph and Mary in the manger? <laughs> in you know uh, in the in the not in the manger, but in the barn, right? Uh, you know, fucking like animals. I mean, all the animals around in, in Christ's birth, you know, there's something interesting there too in the in the manger scene with the whole bestiary and, and menagerie in, in the Wolfman case. But I think that's maybe that's coincidental, but I but it's still it's still fascinating. I mean, you know. This little passage might be one we could potentially wrap this up on because it kind of ties a nice little bow onto the two little strands of this kind of scopophilic monetary libidinal economy discussion. This would all be very well if it were the whole story, but certain details of the situation and a due regard for the connection between it and this particular patient's life story compel us to pursue the interpretation further. The necessary condition of his rebirth 
was that he should have an enema administered to him by a man. It was not until later on that he was driven by necessity to take this man's place himself, which was in parentheses. This can only have meant he had identified himself with his mother, that the man was acting as father, and that the enema was repeating the act of copulation as the fruit of which the excrement baby, which was once again himself, would be born. The fantasy of rebirth was therefore bound up closely with the necessary condition of sexual satisfaction from a man, so that the translation now runs to this effect, only on condition that he took the woman's place and substituted himself for his mother, and thus let himself be sexually satisfied by his father and bore him a child, only on that condition would his illness leave him. Here, therefore, the fantasy of rebirth was simply a mutilated and censored version of homosexual wishful fantasy. It's intense. Uh, 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 and this is, this is Schreiber, right? This is Wolfman. This is Wolfman. Yeah, it sounds like Schreiber. It sounds like Schreiber with the stuff about rebirth. Yeah, exactly. That's no, what I was like. <laughs> this, this is great. This is great. I, I, uh, this is again, why I think Freud jumps the gun in my opinion early on by insisting that the the son wants sexual satisfaction from the father. But here with this piece of material from the analysis, I think that Freud is more closer to the money. I will say that we could just as easily remember again, another childhood theory of sexuality is at, okay, so we've gotten past some of the first Ideas, for example, that that you can shit a child out, which we have here. But you all, so you start to see, well, the father does something to the mother, and in the childhood theories of sexuality, it's usually like an older cousin or some some shit that's going to tell the younger kids, oh, well, the man puts his penis in the woman, which is a revelation, obviously, to to the younger child. But the older child will say, yeah, he puts his penis into the mother and, uh, and then he, and then he pees. Right. Because obviously that, again, that has a logical truth to it because it is the same, it is the same machine. uh, Well, it's the same apparatus. How do you, yeah, it's the same apparatus, but different machinic components, right? We, we, it's, it's a urethral discharge, obviously, but, but, you know, different, um, yeah, it's like a soda machine. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean and, and it's it's kind of why why one can think that piss is stored in the balls rather than the bladder. <laughs> right? Because because it is, you know, we think of the mach- the urethra machine, the penis machine as obviously it's it's the same with the it's 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 like the inverted theory of the cloaca, right? That they're that men and women have have butts and each have butts and therefore they can each have babies because babies come out of the butt. It's the same thing where, you know, obviously what there's only one fluid for, for everything, right. You know, peeing and, um, and ejaculating are conceived as, as one flow, just as, just as there's only one organ for, uh, for shitting and, and conceiving and bearing children. So, yeah, I mean, like uh, the stuff about rebirth is fascinating. I like that, that it's phrased in this way because, you know, for Schraber, 
his rebirth as woman, his becoming woman is predicated upon giving birth, rebirthing all of humanity. So it takes on a much more cosmic right. aspect. And I think that's why Wolfman only borders on um, the paranoid schizophrenia, the psychosis that Schraber, that Schraber is afflicted by. Right. You yeah. Know, he he has, lacks the delusion, the delusions, the there's hallucinations. Only, yeah. The, the only hallucination that, and Lacan sees upon this, and as, as I kind of said last time, the, the one hallucination he recalls is this, hallucination that his finger has been cut off oh yeah 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 and it's hanging by sort of it's hanging by by skin and uh you know castration blah 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 but yeah for for (laughs) interprets this as one kernel of foreclosure but it takes more than that i think to 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 have full-blown schreberian psychosis you know and it's it is interesting as a question of like whether the thread is freud projecting Uh a, a bit or if there's a legitimate diagnostic link he's he's catching on to. Or what, I would, what I would say to end this session, because I guess <laughs> we do have to, you know, yeah. it's like Aristotle saying, it's no, got inter- stop somewhere. <laughs> right. This interminable um, analysis that we're going through right. today. <laughs> analysis, terminal and interminable. No, it's been a lot of fun. I, I would say that, yes, I think that insofar as Freud seizes upon the transference and insofar as he takes you know, rightly or wrongly, but as he becomes aware, he, he, he takes on a father substitute role and an identification role in his role as analyst. Yes, I think Freud's insistence, his diminishment of the wolf pack down to one wolf equals the father is part and parcel of this too. This, this homosexual desire for the father from the father is all a part of the mechanisms of transference is love. Right. So this the seizing upon the mechanism of transference in order to push through the analysis and the interpretation, which, you know, as Deleuze and Guattari will say, is is part of the problem. But not not that it doesn't exist, not that it's not a mechanism. It's just there's something insofar as it analyzes that it leads to a an impasse. It leads to a type of abuse in its universalizing schema. But I do think that here Freud needs the father needs the complex to hinge on the father because it hinges on proper transference. And I think that this is also explains why Freud eventually had to make a a bet, had to make a wager and take that step in that ultimatum and say, look, we're not getting anywhere. You've got so many months and then it's over. No negotiations. I think Freud knows that, um, only with the threat of abandonment can the transference reach a new gear and start to produce, and also the resistances be overcome to start to produce material for the transference to, to latch onto something. So I think that Freud needs the, the father figure very much so in closing the case. Now, whether or not it's obvious that the Wolfman has libidinal investment in the father, that's, that's not, it's not that Freud's making all this shit up. Right. You can't say that. It's just that we have to realize that it is a big tool in his toolbox. Right. Linked to, ca- you know, castration, Oedipus, yada, yada, yada. Conceptual like, tools. <laughs> yeah. I, I think that, that Freud becomes more and more convinced of Oedipus and becomes more and more universalizing of it and insists upon it as, as he gets older is because of all of this 
observational material, all of this material. And he's what he's trying to do, as he says, and this is a good place to, to close. As he says, from the start in the Wolfman case history, if it took me four years, it's precisely because this case, one of the benefits of it taking so long is that it can provide means of shortening and intensifying, accelerating analysis that we can spend four years in this case, hopefully down the line to have to spend less time with other cases. And I think that that's why he starts to rely on these figures of the father of castration, of incest prohibition, of uh, Oedipus, yada, yada, yada. It's precisely because he sees that that is a kind of linchpin, that is a kind of Archimedean lever from which to displace the interpretation or or the symptoms or the associative change. It becomes, the phallus literally does become the master signifier, right, as Lacan would say, because it puts in so much work and because it works for him, for Freud. And I think this is why... As Deleuze and Guattari say, Freud doesn't like philosophers. There's too much like schizophrenics. Father doesn't <laughs> stick. The transference yeah. doesn't stick. And this is, you know, this is why he, this is why I said to you, I don't know if he would have taken Schreber as a, as a patient. He might have. It's unlikely because Schreber would have shrugged off the father, the father shit too. You know, God is, God is not necessarily the father in Schreber. It oscillates. It can be, but it, but, it, but it doesn't work in the way in which we see Freud wielding it as a weapon right. to cut through the Gordian knot, you know? And, uh, um, nice. you know, the I... The Baromian. The Baromian knot, right. <laughs> so that would be my takeaway. What, what, do you have some final thoughts? Yeah, just one thing I wanted to wrap up on in this whole notion of this discussion of, I guess, God and divinity and, and so forth and the Wolfman is that what I thought was interesting is in a way you could sort of look at the Trinity as its own Oedipal triangle. And if I'm doing that sort of theatrical metaphor here, obviously, right. The Wolfman is readily already identifying as the son Christ. Yes. The father and the father, like, you know, it pretty, that pretty well maps on, I guess you would maybe say the, The mother is the Holy Ghost in the in the sense that her biggest influence is sort of her not I mean absence right at least in the in the case history her, like her she's her, she's present but she's not yeah her for, the, abs- for the most part right the only time she seems present is when she's trying to teach him Bible stories in order to calm his his anxiety hysteria she's present when she's She's present in transforming the anxiety hysteria into the obsessive compulsive. She gives him the new stories. The Wolfman case is all about these different stories. He's hearing these stories from the grandfather. He's hearing stories about the uncle. He's hearing stories about, about wolves, about literary writing hood. And so the, so when he, at the age of four, after he's, he's gone through all of the, he's, he started to have these hysterical neurotic symptoms. She's present to try to try to bring the Bible in. And part of that is is obviously bringing the law in, but as Freud says, the mother and Nanya too, who is a very religious woman, but also superstitious, it centers around the passion of the Christ, right? So the whole story of probably the the, the, the first four gospels, right? The Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the story of Jesus's life and death. And so in that sense, I think that's why he, that's another reason why he starts to identify with Christ. You know, and, and, and why why do I only get one set of birthday? Why do all these other kids get presents on my fucking birthday? Right? Don't, <laughs> don't I deserve two 
two sets of presents. I think that that's a that's a that's a huge that's a huge problem for him. Yeah. Um, that does become this this huge thing where everybody else gets presents on their birthday. So they honestly, all the other kids get two sets of presents throughout a year. I get one. What the fuck? You know, he that that does fuck him up. And that that helps to for him to logically link. Well, it's because I'm a Christ figure. So I have to sacrifice, you know, or something like that. Right. I mean, it's it's wild, but it makes sense. I mean, it, it is astute for for a child to, to do that. Let's go ahead and wrap up there so we don't have like a five hour episode. Yeah. I mean, sadly, there's so much more we could have talked about. I mean, but I do want to, you know, tell the readers, we will keep talking about Wolfman some next. Well, some we'll be talking about the Wolfman's magic word by Abraham and Turok. And we'll be having a a guest with us, young Agamben's significant other. I believe her name's Phoebe. I believe that's right. So we'll have Phoebe on next week and she will help us walk through some of the Wolfman's magic words. So we'll get to, I think what we'll see, what we'll enjoy next time is some of the questions I started off with, which is this question of language, this question of the different languages and the different, his verbarium as they talk about it, the different words in Russian, German, and French. So, so his different ways of, of translating, I think that'll be fascinating. And then we'll be back to Anti-Oedipus which will be a breath of fresh air. But this is going to be the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins signing off. This is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Whitewashed, lobotomized people, as in the block work orange.